Hey everyone, it's uh, Stephen and Brendan of Into the Aether, and uh, we're recording this after we just recorded uh, this week's episode. But we just wanted to say something about what's happening in the world right now. I, I know a lot of people come to our show for an escape and for conversations about video games. And long story short, like we know why you're listening. So I think while I think we don't shy away from heavier topics, like we're not going to cover world news every week. But every now and then there's just things get to a point where I think it would be kind of irresponsible to not even address them a little bit. And I think we're also fortunate enough to have enough of an audience that we wanted to encourage you all to do whatever you can to help and to do our part as well. So obviously, I think you can guess uh, we're going to talk a bit about just the state of the world with the war between Israel and Palestine right now. And uh, Brendan, I know you had some words prepared for that. Yeah, yeah, I I think before I even say what I'm going to say, I just think like social media has a tendency to kind of flatten the conversation or discourse in, in a lot of ways. And you know, for some people, supporting Palestinians can be seen as anti-Semitic, and in some cases, supporting Israel can be seen as Islamophobic, and that's that's not the reality of the situation, right? Like, I, I think while while Islamophobia and anti-Semitism are obviously present on both sides of the argument, I'd hope that if you've listened to this show at all before, you know that that's not where our heart lies. I, I think there's just a recognition of, of human suffering that needs to be addressed and to be assisted with in any way that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why we're bringing this up in particular is that uh, to be frank, there are human rights violations being perpetrated against Palestinians right now and the occupation of their state and the sheer number of unwarranted deaths is, um, I, to be perfectly frank, it's a blight on the history of the world in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I think like, yes, what Hamas did was horrific. And what is happening to civilians with no control over Hamas's actions is also horrific. And I think acknowledging that both of those things can be true simultaneously is kind of where we're at. So with that said, and again, wanting to ease human suffering, which is the whole point of this, um, we have two places that we want to direct people to. Number one is uh, a website. This is going to be in the show notes, obviously. It's uh, jewishvoiceforpeace.org, which has a great page that allows you to very easily contact your representative if you live in the U.S. Uh, asking for a ceasefire and saying, like, we should we should stop supporting this uh, because what's happening is terrible. Um, and also on the other end, if you'd rather support financially on our Instagram, if you go to, into, uh, sorry, yeah, go to into the cast online or Instagram.com slash into the cast, uh, pinned at the top of the page, like not even a post, but like in the actual profile itself, um, will be a fundraiser, um, which you can donate to, um, however much you want that'll run. I think that's going to be going for the next like 30 or so days after this episode comes out somewhere in that vicinity. So about a month, um, I encourage you to use both of those resources. Um, but if you know, one works better than the other for you, that's also great. Whatever you can do to help. Absolutely. Yeah. I believe there's also a big itch bundle that's donating to similar causes Mm. that might be over by the time this episode comes out, unfortunately, but um, keep an eye I think, out in case there's keep more. An eye, yeah, itch often does bundles like that. So, you know, keep an eye on that space for sure. Yeah, but that's it. That's all. That's all we have. Again, we're just going to have a normal episode after this. <laughs> yes, we've already we've already recorded it. We wanted to kind of keep these two things separate. So here's a little transition between this and and that. Obviously, this is like a very heavy topic. But we just felt like we should say something. So appreciate you listening and really appreciate if you can do anything to help out. Absolutely. OK, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hello and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. I'm Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hogan. Right? Yeah. We redid that take because he said, I want to try something a little different. That's what it was. I changed, yeah, from my name is to I'm. Because you yeah. always do I'm, but that one time you did my name is also, and I wanted to see how it felt both ways, you know? Yeah, I think matching is the most important thing, but I like both doing I'm. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. It's an interesting feeling. Hey, uh, <laughs> hopefully that uh, was a riveting Sometimes opening. you record and release your thought process <laughs> to a listening audience. Uh, welcome to the show. I have, an up- I have an interesting update for you. Let's hear it. I have an update. We've been actually on the phone for like almost two hours at this point, just like yeah. chatting before we started recording. Uh, and I've been withholding a piece of information from you the entire time. Did you know we have released over 300 episodes of this podcast? Wow. We crossed 300 episodes like a couple weeks ago, and I don't think either of us noticed. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because I remember we did like we did something for 100. Yeah, we did Into we, the Aether 100. Yeah. And people in the Discord like made like really thoughtful like messages and, and artwork and stuff. And, and here we are 300. just like, eh, yeah. another one down the drain. Yeah, we, oh, we also did Into the Aether 200. So this is the first time we've actually just like straight up missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny. I mean, some, you know, it's like birthdays. Eventually it's like, ah, oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> this is our, this will be our 303rd episode. We can call this one Into the Aether 303. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Just the, like gray balloons and like a blown out candle. <laughs> um, yeah. Exciting so, though. I'm very proud of us. Yeah, this is our, our 300. So what, what what was our 300th episode? I'm actually just curious now, just for myself. It was um, Two Matadors, the episode about the Order, 1886, and Dredge and Solar Ash. That was our 300th episode. We should have called it Three Matadors. Oh, yeah. shit. Fuck! <laughs> anyway. Uh, we also released last week our bonus episode about The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, which I yeah. think uh, got a great reception. We we're both very proud of it. We were both, it's one of the, I, I, for people who don't make podcasts who listen to this one, I, I think there's a really interesting phenomenon where while you're recording an episode, you can tell if one is going to be like a good one. Yeah. I, I think you and I have never, actually only once have we had an instance where we recorded an episode where we're like, that's a bad one. And we just deleted it. Um, <laughs> and that was pretty early on. Yeah, it was pretty early yeah. on. I think we were like still getting our feet wet on doing the show. Yeah. But we've, we've outside of that, never had an instance where we're like, this is a bad one. Uh, but every once in a while we have, we have an episode where while we're recording it, I think you can feel like this was, this is going to be like one of the good ones. And that was definitely the case with Majora's Mask. I'm really happy yeah. how that came out. Me too. I, I think Zelda is always kind of, there are certain games that just kind of bring out the best of us in a weird way i feel like zelda is one of them there's just so much to talk about especially yeah. in a game like majora's mask you know uh very thematically rich as our halloween bonus uh thank you all so much for saying very nice things about it uh thank you for listening to it etc cetera, etc cetera. we also announced if you didn't listen to it it's worth mentioning that at the end of that episode we announced that our next bonus episode is going to be the legend of zelda twilight princess yes um keeping the zelda train rolling our, our thought was just like before we started recording the majora's mask episode i just kind of brought up like we did ocarina of time earlier in the year we did Majora's Mask and there are some like interesting loose narrative threads between those two games and Twilight Princess um, that almost make it a little trilogy and I thought it'd be interesting to just end our year of bonus episodes with that trilogy. Yes. Apologies to everyone waiting patiently for the big Uncharted episode, but that will still happen. That's going to happen early next year. Yeah. Um, I think we're at a point where we want to make sure all the bonuses get the time they need. So it may not always be monthly, but I we have like the next three planned out and we're really excited. So I think it's going to all 
pay off i think yeah after after well during actually our break over the summer uh we just kind of sat back and you know had a conversation with aj you actually the two of you were here at, in brooklyn um we yeah. were sitting on the deck and we just had a conversation about like every single thing we do for the show and if we wanted to keep them the same or change them a little bit and one of the things that we came to was like with bonus episodes in particular there are instances in which we feel like we are rushing through games to get them done for bonus episodes and we kind of wanted to avoid doing that in the future yeah i think that was in your door even though that episode came out great with our friend will that yeah. for me at least that was the one that kind of taught that lesson because i d i wasn't able to finish it 100 percent, and that was also while we were preparing for dreamcast and right after <laughs> uh tears of the kingdom had just come out so yeah. i'm like that was like one of the few times where i'm like this actually feels like too much and I, I it was almost like preventative in our parks we never want to get to a point where like the episode suffers because we set an arbitrary deadline exactly you know? exactly yeah and we're thankfully at a point where like those are those should be bonuses like i don't think anyone's demanding them to be like every month on the on it's not rent you know like we're not paying rent uh <laughs> so Anyway, I thought you meant it's not rent the musical. At that's first, why so that's, that's why I followed up. because I'm like, that's a weird analogy to make. It's not rent, you yeah. know. <laughs> anyway, this month is going to be The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Um, we are both playing the GameCube version, which I think is fun. Yes. Um, yeah. I've never played the GameCube version when I had my very formative experience with that game for the first time. It was on the Nintendo Wii. Uh, so if you don't know the difference between the two, first of all, obviously motion controls and like pointing at the screen and stuff. But the other big thing that's really, really messing with me on this playthrough is that the map is completely inverted because I wanted to change Link's dominant sword hand on the Wii version to be the right hand. So they flipped the whole game. So they flipped yeah. just the whole game visually and everything I know about the game is now reversed, uh, which is like Majora's Mask adjacent in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, so it, if anything is actually aiding this playthrough, making it even weirder yeah. than it would have been. I also played it on Wii when it came out, and I think it works fine on Wii, but you can tell they made it with the GameCube in mind first. Yes. Like it does feel like, say we all about Skyward Sword, that game was made for the Wii. Like yeah. everything about it was thinking of motion controls. For That's why even the Switch re-release of that game, like trying to add button controls to that game was really difficult. And I don't yeah. even think they quite nailed it, if I'm being honest. No, it, it, that's still like, I so, oh my God. When they announced the HD like remaster of Skyward Sword, I'm like, this is Aether Bait. Like we're gonna be the like <laughs> people who are like, give this game another chance. I still think it's a solid game. Like by all means, compared to most video games it's excellent yeah but it's easily i think my least favorite of the 3d zeldas at least. yeah i i to be clear i loved the remake i just or the re-release i just wish that the button controls felt better like they yeah. are just a little bit too much of a hurdle for me to be able to like easily recommend it to most people the, w the way that i would have there's a lot to love about that game though i think like narratively it's pretty interesting i also think like the dungeons are great i, I like the sort of impressionist painting style of the world yeah honestly so the thing that I blocked out that is the reason I stopped playing is the dousing. Oh my God. Like <laughs> no one remembers it. When I tell people they like actually recall a horrific memory, it's half the game is radar detection. You just like walk around pointing your sword, trying to find stuff. It's, it's, it's worse than the tingle internship in Wind Waker, like truly. And it's longer. Yeah. That's, it's also going back to the GameCube version of Twilight Princess. We're now contending with needing to find all the like little like Twilight bugs, True. Uh, which they cut down in half for the, Wii U version. It's not, yeah, it's even that though in its full form, like the Tangle internship is like truly one of the worst things Nintendo's done to their audience. <laughs> and Wind Waker is my favorite Zelda, but that is inexcusable. 
we will do Wind Waker eventually. I can't uh, wait. What's so funny is like we made this decision the night before we recorded the Majora's Mask episode. And now, yeah. again, there are so many rumors spinning up that Wind Waker and Twilight Princess are going to be released on the Switch like before the end of this year, which that's been, that's been like a long standing rumor. But yeah. I, I hope it happens when we release the episode just to Can you add imagine? to the mythos. It'd be wild. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's our plan for November. Uh, expect that episode towards the end of the month. I will say uh, so far, I'm having an amazing time playing Twilight Princess. That game not only holds up, but I think is even better than I remembered it being. So it, it's surreal for me because I feel like every other Zelda I've played somewhat recently, like Ocarina and Majora I grew up with, but I also like have revisited them like in recent years prior to the bonus. Yeah, we also did the Game Boy Advance and DS and 3DS episodes, which all had their own Zeldas. Yeah. Yeah. So this is even though it's it's a slightly more modern Zelda game, like I haven't played it since high school or college so like it's all really fresh to me and i <laughs> not to say too much because i want to say it for the episode but like the minute that game started and it opens with two people like sitting looking at water going do you ever feel sad i'm like of course brendan loves this one this yep. is just kingdom hearts like it's just <laughs> it is you meet zelda in the organization 13 robes i'm like oh fuck yeah this is just kingdom hearts 2 zelda style <laughs> Yeah, you got me. So that's our plan for the future. But do you want to talk about uh, another game in which the protagonist ends up in a dark, twisted, inverted version of their own normal life? Exactly. Yeah. So Chrono Cross bonus is happening now. <laughs> uh, Surge is at it again with Fungi and the <laughs> captain of the pirate ship. And not quite Frog. I would love to talk about Alan Wake, too. Um, <laughs> I, I'm also so happy that you like not forced me to but i'm glad we played alan wake one like right before this yeah um, we ended our spooky season with playing alan wake our last like october horror game and i was initially very mixed on it but it kind of grew on me as i played it and i was really curious about alan wake too because like alan wake one i think is is kind of like a, a flawed gem i mean nothing's perfect but i think it's like a game where it's maybe the intentions at least early on are not super clear we talked about like is alan wake insufferable as a protagonist on purpose but that almost adds i think to the mystique of that game like nothing is really clear about it for better or for worse i think the deeper you go the more it's clear that the game is very interested in the idea of fiction and blurring the line between fiction like it's i think it's very purposeful that the game is framed like a tv show mm -hmm. not just because like that came out in 2010 and every game was trying to be like see i could be like tv or movies but yeah. like uh i don't know what that impression was but uh it actually does add another layer of fiction between like alan and reality yes where it's like is reality his book is it the show is this like a show that exists in another world right. you know and not to spoil anything but i think it, it starts to explore that like disconnect more directly mm -hmm. as the story goes on and then control is is like almost a bird's eye view of that theme but then constructed to be a literal place and government agency right it's like a sect of the fbi or even another organization entirely that investigates paranormal happenings but everything is like super top secret yeah and not not i mean i don't i don't think it's spoiling at this point because it's like table stakes for the marketing of alan wake 2 but the way control doesn't wrap up but like what you find throughout your experience playing through control is that the fpc or the federal bureau of control has been investigating bright falls and the things that are happening with alan wake and his mysterious disappearance for 13 years and all of this stuff which i think is really interesting and we talked about that a lot in in that last episode about alan wake but just talking 
talking a lot about how interesting it is that Remedy is now at this point in their studio's career where they can you know, take stock of the things that they have control over in terms of like the IP that they have and saying we want to create a connected universe. But what does that mean? And why would we do that? Which I think is the extra step that a lot of people who want to create connected universes don't take is like the why of it all. You know, it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> obviously, you have things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which come out and make billions of dollars and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of other studios tried to replicate that that success and like did not do so. Right. Like, I think the easiest one that everybody always points to is the dark universe, which is the universal version where they tried to make like the invisible man and the swamp thing and the mummy and all that stuff. <laughs> um, Jackal and Hyde. And they tried to like bring back the 1930s version of universal pictures like monsters and tried to turn that into a, a like MCU S connected universe without a really clear reason why you would do that. You know, yeah. and I think Remedy is taking that extra step of saying, actually, all of these things that we're making come at storytelling and narrative from the same perspective, which is, as you mentioned, this questioning of reality and 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 what makes a game narrative and what makes a film narrative and what makes a meta narrative as well. And I think although Alan Wake one is like a pretty good version of that and control, I think, is an even better version of that. I don't know how you're feeling about it so far, but Alan Wake two, I feel like is that like really crystallizing and it feels like the most confident version of that that Remedy has released so far for me. Absolutely. Least. Yeah, I, I think there's a there's a quote from the French director uh, Jean Renoir who did Grand Illusion. He said that like every director has the one movie they're always trying to make like over and over again. And that's, you know, I don't think entirely true, but I do think there's something to be said about like when you look at like Q Kubrick's career or like Tarantino's career or, you know, whoever, like you do see consciously or not similar themes pop up a lot. And I think with some developers as well, I think the same is true where like, I think the first one that comes to mind always for me is Supergiant, where you have like, you know, a dedicated group of people exploring this idea of like cyclical storytelling cyclically throughout the course of their career until yeah. they arrive at Hades, which like, I think all their games are great, but Hades felt like everything clicked into place like perfectly. Mm -hmm. And Alan Wake 2 feels that way for sure. Like I, I think there's always, I, I really liked playing Alan Wake 1 um, and I enjoyed Control, but I, I found that I always appreciated them and respected them more than maybe I liked playing them. Mm. There was always a little bit of like, okay, like I want to like this more than I actually do. Yeah. Uh, Alan Wake 2 just fucking rules. Like everything <laughs> about it yeah. is like, what the fuck? People made this? <laughs> I think they clearly learned so much like control is immediately so interesting cinematically, like the cuts to weird images. And like, I, I think a lot of their games are interested in kind of overlapping images on top of each other, yeah. which goes hand in hand with the theme of like fiction and reality. Like there's, especially in Alan Wake 2, there are a lot of like silhouettes of shadow behind or in front of people as they like think through or narrate things. And right. control, I think had a lot of like jump cuts to flowing imagery and like sort of a distorted narration of what it is like yeah and everything in that game felt like very clean and corporate but also alien in a way that was very interesting right so this feels like okay you have sort of the atmosphere and like twin peaks there's a, literally a place called mirror peaks in alan wake 2 like <laughs> the the sort of Stephen king atmosphere of alan wake one but i think with the artistry of control 
like that just meshes so well because I think they they the look of the game also I mean Alan Wake came out in 2010 so kind of unfair but like the look of the characters like their facial animations while they're talking is is really impressive yeah like even by today's standards I think I I'm kind of numb to that at this point like I know motion capture is impressive like you know and a lot of these big AAA games like have good versions of it but something about the like the performances and the facial capture in this game really stand out especially because they are also interested in using mixed media so like you will watch tv shows that are essentially fmvs of like Mm -hmm. recordings of real people there are pictures of characters i I imagine like the actors who played them you know in real life too adding to that distinction so like everything about the game aesthetically is just so good i will also say just off the bat because a lot of people asked you know, when we when we cover horror games or scary games, people will kind of ask, like, you know, how scary is it if you're on the fence? I will just say this game is significantly scarier than the first one. Yeah, it's actually one of my it's one of my gripes with this game, actually, especially yeah. after playing Alan Wake and Control is that they ramp it up in such a significant way. I mean, speaking to the many, many influences of, of various forms of media on this game, you have the Twin Peaks and you have the, the Stephen King of it all, um, which also informed a lot. And, and the Twilight Zone, which informed a lot of Alan Wake one you add to that the very obvious influence of true detective season one as well with the matthew mcconaughey and uh oh my god what is his name i just forgot his name uh woody harrelson the matthew mcconaughey and woody harrelson like investigating a cult activity and like the darkness of that and just like the kind of southern vibe like all of that has made its way into alan wake 2 and it is gruesome in the same way it is like really horrific but on top of that there's also just a lot of jump scares yeah there are which i don't love to be honest that's like the weakest part of the game for me I, is I like, think it's like it's a, I think it's a failing of horror in a lot of ways to yeah. rely on jump scares and and I understand why they're included in the game narratively like there's actually a reason for the jump scares happening um that I, I don't want to get into for spoiler concerns but I still think because it takes so long to get to the point where you wrap your head around why that's happening in the first place it just feels like at any moment they're going to hit you with a jump scare and it ratchets up the tension artificially instead of I think through like excellence and narrative which they have proven they can do which I think is that's where the frustration comes in for me is like, I know that they're better than that, you know? Yeah, right. Exactly. Cause you, you see it being done both ways in the same game, but I will say like my major critique with Alan Wake one was that it just felt like kind of similar to uncharted one. Just the number of fights was so high and like unnecessary, like it kind of reduced the horror and just made it kind of laughable where I'm like, okay, there's going to be 18 guys here on my way to the next big light. (laughs) You know, they're going to be like pretzels or buy one, get one free right before they like hit you with an axe. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Whereas this game, I think you don't actually get into combat until maybe like 90 minutes into the game. Um, And it's really scary and they throw fewer enemies at you, at least early on. But like, it's much more tense and it feels much better. The combat feels really good, I think. Yeah. A similar thing where you like have to shine a flashlight on them before you shoot them. But there's also like a glowing weak spot, which I think does kind of help. Like I think it adds to this sense of like order where you flash them with the flashlight and then look for the spot to shoot. Mm -hmm. It almost adds like a Resident Evil 4. Like it reminds me of like when you would shoot a zombie in Resident Evil 4 and then the weird big tentacle eyeball would pop up. Yeah, right. Like 
it's like, okay, now I know where to shoot. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> although in that game, they're more dangerous when they get to the, I mean, you get it. But the combat feels much better. I don't, I don't think that was like necessarily something like I'm not playing this for the combat, but I think it is good that like if you are thrown into the situations, like it, it feels tense, but it feels good too. Like mm-hmm. I feel like it, it's much more responsive and, you know, the, the dual sense of the PS5 feels really good when you're like aiming and shooting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I also think they really got the balance right in terms of resource scarcity like i always feel like i'm really threading yeah. the needle on what i have access to and totally. they're, they're doing similar things that resident evil did in that case as well where it's like they know if you have a lot of pistol ammo and will stop giving it to you for a while when you find containers and things like that like they'll start giving you other items or maybe no items if you're like really well stocked up so the game is kind of adaptively shifting around based on how well you're doing which also feels like it's in line with what the game is trying to say i think thematically yeah in a weird way like to to take that idea and make it almost diegetic in the in the narrative i think is really interesting but that said it i I think i i just feel like i'm in i'm living in such a like golden era at least in this year like 2023 just as a year has been so ridiculous but to have resident evil 4 remake and this come out in the same year is so interesting to me to compare and contrast the two of them and like what are they going for separately and what are they each going for similarly and and who is I think coming out on top on that. Yeah. And I think, I think they're just, they're coming at the idea of a survival horror game in such different ways that it's almost hard to compare them, even though it's very clear that Resident Evil four is directly inspiring what's going on in Alan Wake two. And it, it also, to be clear, the original Resident Evil inspired Alan Wake one. So you have this kind of like recursive looping thing as well within that. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And the more you dig into it, the wilder it gets, right? Like you could even, you could even follow the rabbit hole even deeper if you wanted to. And I won't like get super in depth on it, but I think the easiest, the easiest path to follow is like the director of this game of Alan Wake and Alan Wake two is Sam Lake, who is playing a character in this game named agent Casey. Agent Casey is the name of the character in the books that Alan Wake wrote so you have suddenly the real life version of the person that Alan Wake like made his fame off of and then killed off. Like that's that's how that's what's happening in Alan Wake one is Alan Wake has these like the series of, of Agent Casey novels and then is like, is this all I am? Is this all I'm ever going to be is just writing about this like same guy over and over again and then kills him off and then doesn't know what to do next. And that's what leads to Alan Wake happening is like, I'm, I need to like go into the woods and like figure out my life kind of. So here you have in Alan Wake two him literally being confronted with the character that he created and then killed off is like here and a real guy. And then when you like have conversations with Casey about it, he's like, yeah, I hate that I have the same name as this fucking guy in these books. But to Alan Wake, he's like, wow, this is this is exactly how I imagined he would always look, which is wild. But then you go even a level deeper and knowing that that's Sam Lake's face, right? Agent Casey is also very clearly supposed to be Max Payne. Like the idea of Alan Wake one is that he wrote the Max Payne video games as books. Yeah. Right. And way back when Sam Lake also provided his face for Max Payne and the voice actor that they had for Max Payne is the person doing the voice of Agent Casey in this game. So it really is like not only just wrapping in the like remedy connected universe, but is asking a lot of these questions about like how intentional is the role of the author in their storytelling. Right. Yeah. So you have that 
not only playing out in the in the sense of Alan's story and what he's going through in the dark place and all this like wild stuff that happens between Alan Wake 1 and 2, but you also have the literal actual creators of the video game asking those questions by inserting themselves into the narrative as well, which I think is like such fucking big brain explosion, <laughs> galaxy brain shit. And then I think one of the more interesting things to me, or at least one of the things I'm starting to uncover more and more as I play the game, and it didn't even occur to me in Alan Wake 1, but is now occurring to me a lot more in Alan Wake 2, is like Remedy Studios is a Scandinavian studio, and there is a lot of Scandinavian influence in this game in ways that I hadn't even really attached to specifically like there's a lot of Norse mythology coming into it I think that you know the main character that you play as at least for the first couple hours of this game is Saga Anderson which like she has connections to to Scandinavia as well like there's there's a lot of that happening as well so a lot of antlers and like horns imagery in the game too yeah, yeah there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of Remedy Studios coming through in this besides just the most obvious one, which is Sam Lake's face appearing in the video game. And in some cases, just Sam Lake appearing as himself in the video game, which (laughs) is a whole other (laughs) rabbit hole. But also you can see because, you know, video games, I, I I bristle a little bit at like the auteur thing with video games, just considering how big studios are and how many people, you know, like Kojima, obviously visionary dude, but like the the amount of games that are actually made by one person, it's like Toby Fox even then he had some help yeah exactly that is such an exception you know yeah. like it was like toby fox like made the whole game and and uh the artist temi helped him with some character design i think with deltarune he has more of a team but like that's so rare and stardew valley i think is the other big one but like the amount of games where one person actually makes the whole thing very few yeah and i i, yeah. I think what you know i don't i don't want to I don't want to dunk on Kojima too much, but I, re- I really don't appreciate a lot of his like I I am Kojima Productions, like without me, sure. there'd be nothing kind of energy, which I don't think he's ever saying explicitly, but almost saying implicitly by not highlighting a lot of the other people that work on his stuff. Yeah, that's that's the narrative, right? I mean, I yeah. think like, you know, I think when people discuss him, there's this like breakaway from Konami and then starting his own thing, which I'm glad he did, to be clear. But there is like yes. Death Stranding is my favorite game of his. It's also like Tommy Tellerico Studio adjacent, <laughs> where if you name a, a bit, place yeah. after yourself who are you giving credit to <laughs> yeah and I, I think one of the things that i'm really appreciative of when it comes to alan wake 2 is although you again have the most obvious like sam lake showing up as himself and as agent casey in the video game there is also a huge acknowledgement of not only the culture of the place where the video game was made but there are a lot of cases where as you walk around and see images of people like posted up around bright falls and in other places they are images of the other developers who have like included themselves in the game as well so you have this like representation of everybody who works at remedy and not just sam lake which i think is really great and also again aids the narrative and aids what they're trying to say with the overall theme of the game absolutely the first thing that came to mind was the Kerber enthusiasm episode where larry david has to fill in for george and the george character is based off of larry david yes and in real life apparently larry david called jason alexander and said how do i do george and he was like i was doing you the whole time like why are you asking me just like four layers of different fiction there yeah but yeah, that's I, I appreciate you going through that. And I think that's just like one example of this game's interest in fiction. One of the things I love about this game is like not only does the combat feel good, but I think like they are able to gamify narrative in an interesting way, specifically how this game is in some ways like a investigation, like a murder investigation game. Mm-hmm. So if you're a fan of like Ace Attorney or Obra Dinn, like there is a little bit of that here. Yeah, um, I think it's a little like at least early on, it's a little bit kind of on the rails. 
but I can see it kind of blossoming over time. But basically, it does take the reins off a bit the further in you get. Uh, to be clear, I'm on chapter three, uh, just so people listening know. No spoilers, obviously, but like pretty early on, one of the first things the game teaches you. So you play as Saga Anderson in the beginning. Uh, you're an FBI investigator with Agent Casey. You're going to where Alan one, Alan one, Alan Wake one took place. And uh, one of the first things the game teaches you how to do is enter what's called the mind place. So if you're playing on PS5, you hit the touchpad and you're instantly transported into this like cabin in the woods type place. And it's just like so it's so mundane, but also so cool and clearly so like Twin Peaks inspired where essentially in this mind place there's like a whole like always sunny board of like cases that you can connect with thumbtacks and string but basically as you oh pepe sylvia oh yeah yes 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 yes. uh as you investigate crime scenes and talk to people you'll get like items that represent that information Uh, sometimes they'll be photographs sometimes they'll just be like lines of dialogue said by a character and you'll see like okay like i'm putting this case on the wall and then it will be like okay like what is the cultist psychology or like where did they take the body and then you can kind of put what you have in those categories and it will like really cleanly display them on the wall so you can just like as agent anderson like take a step back and just look at the whole thing yeah but it will also tell you like if if the case is closed if you have like everything you need the character will like come to the right conclusion based on all of that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if they'll ever like ask the player, like, what do you think? Like, I, I kind of want to make a choice in that, but I, I, it just feels good to like itemize information in that way. Yeah. I love it as a, as a framing device. And it, the idea of the like case notes pin board, I think is something that I, I just like seeing in video games in general. And, and I like seeing how different developers decide to interact with it. The places in which it, works are the moments in which I can take a step back and I can look at it and I can kind of infer how to solve a case because to be clear there eventually you get like a, a drawer with a bunch of case files and you can like switch between the different case files and like be working on multiple cases simultaneously and there are times in which I have like looked at the board been like oh, I know exactly what to do and how to do it and can go out into the world and like solve the case before I've even gotten some of the clues I need to put on the board to get Saga to come to that conclusion, which I think is great. That's the best version of that or like where the game gives me the grace to be like, you can figure it out if you want to, you know, or you can go step by step in some of the, you know, people who live in Bright Falls will start to point you in the right direction, et cetera, et cetera. The worst version of this, though, is every once in a while, there will be times in which you can't progress unless you start putting stuff on the board. So yeah. even if you know the answer, I've, ha- I've had two instances so far specifically where I know what I'm supposed to do and I'm in the place where I'm supposed to be to do that thing. And it's not there specifically because I haven't gone back into the mind place and started putting stuff on the pin board to get that thing to show up. And the first time this happened to me, I was so, so confused. And I started watching a playthrough on YouTube to be like, what is going on here? And they ran to the place where I was and ever like a cutscene started and they started progressing. And I was like, I don't understand. Like, I just don't get it. And then I went back into the mind place and started putting stuff on the pin board. And as soon as I exited, which first of all, I just want to mention this on the side. One of the most uh, incredible uses of the like um, the the amazing speed of the hard drive in the PS5, because when you hit the mind place button, you're just immediately in there. And as soon as you press it again, you are immediately out of it. Like there's no loading at all between the two. It's, it's miraculous. But point being, I went and put all the stuff on the pin board and then 
jumped out of the mind place and suddenly a cutscene started. I was like, oh, okay. So I just I just needed to put this thing on the board in this case. Um, so, you know, it's almost there. It's like 90% of the way. Yeah, there. it reminds me of Ace Attorney for similar reasons where it's like, yeah, you can, you can realize like I know what I'm trying to prove in this case, but I didn't know it was like the broken coffee cup and it, it kind of becomes a trial and error at a certain point. Yes, yes. Overall, I just love the display of it. And then there's also it's not it's not explicitly said, at least early on, but it's clear that that Agent Anderson might have some type of supernatural power because yes. she's able to. So like one, she's just a really good detective and she clearly like gets excited by the cases. I should also say she's a really likable character, like immediately, which yeah, makes me it makes me confident that Alan Wake was decidedly unlikable in the first game. I will you know? say, Stephen, you know, we talked a lot about that in our Alan Wake episode. Yeah. And before this game came out, I went and watched like on YouTube, just a recap of Alan Wake one. And the game makes it very clear that that yeah. was supposed to be the intended goal of that character the whole time. It just, it just kind of ironic because I feel like there were so many other games in 2010 that had similar like misguided like protagonists that were like not supposed to be totally played at face yeah, value. Exactly, yeah, like yeah. this is your hero. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, I'm reminded of the Onion article that guy in philosophy class needs to shut the fuck up. Like, I feel like that's <laughs> that's Alan Alan Wake. Yeah. yeah. But uh, when her her powers, like when she is, so there's the case board, and then there's also like you'll have profiles on all like witnesses and suspects and victims, and she can just like psychically hear them talk about stuff. Like if yeah. she has enough to go on, she can kind of fill in the blanks herself. Yeah. She she does. If you've ever watched Mindhunter on Netflix, which is definitely another huge influence. Influence on, on this game um great series by the way it's by david fincher you should watch it if you haven't it got canceled and will never come back and david fincher i think didn't like working on it so goodbye but it is it is about the first people at the fbi who started putting together and investigating serial killers like in a real way and there's a lot of this there's a lot of like psychiatric profiling essentially that's happening where it's like you can you can see all the information of the case and you can start to infer what this person is thinking or why they did a thing or or where they did a thing or something like that based on the information you're given became a huge part of that kind of investigation. So when they introduce it in this game, Saga's like, oh, I love profiling. Like she literally says like, this is like one of my favorite parts of the job. She sits down in her mind place and looks at a case file for a person in particular. But what she does is not profiling. What she is doing is like literally, as you said, like a psychic reading where she's reading the minds of and having conversations with like spectral versions of these people. And also it's always a shot of her right in front of like the, the deer head in the room. So there's like shadows of horns and antlers on yes. her, yes. which is very cool. I mean, her, her performance performance is just, like everyone is great but i think she really stands out like there's just certain deliveries of her lines that express so much like yeah. there's a small moment like early on when the cop thinks agent casey's in charge mm -hmm. you know and like what a loaded line like no it's I, i'm actually in charge here yes. like not having to say you know the reasons why he assumed otherwise yeah but i don't want to spoil it but there's like there's a moment in a diner where the waitress tells her something that's like shocking to her. Yes. And it's like her face and her tone, like, so like, I feel like in a weaker script, she would have been like shocked or angry, but it's like, this is like how you would react if a stranger told you something fucked up. Yeah. And you're like, do I know you? Like, why are you telling me this? Like, yeah, there's, right. a, there's something to that moment that was like really powerful. Um, But I think all that to say, like what I find so interesting about her character is like, I think they're really setting her up kind of like, 
spiritually to be the reader of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of Alan Wake one is him narrating every beat of the journey and he's the writer and like the pages he's writing are coming true in the story. And on her end, it's like similar things are happening and, and Alan eventually joins the story in his own way. But like her job is to like interpret what's happening and her enjoyment of it and her almost addiction to it. Like at a certain point, she's like, I'm hooked. Yeah. Like I need to know more. She loves the story. Yes. It's like, she's like a fan and a reader while also being an FBI investigator. Yeah. And there's just, there's just a lot of layers there that I find really interesting. Yeah. And I, I don't want to say too much about it. Cause I know you haven't gotten there. And I, th- I think it's like one of the more, it's one of the more interesting turns of the game, but it was in the marketing. So I don't, I don't mind saying like you do play as Alan also. And there's a point in which you can switch back and forth between the two of them and almost 13 sentinels adjacent like get different pieces of the story based on who you're playing Mm. as in different moments Um, and it all coalesces and makes sense which is again a miracle that anyone's able to do that yeah Um, especially with a story this complex but what they're doing with with the alan stuff is you know they have they have a similar thing to the mind place but instead it's the cabin that he's stuck in in alan wake one cool and he's there with the typewriter and what you have on a board instead of the pin board is the plot board and it's alan writing the story to try and get himself i think out of the dark place that's amazing and what they do mechanically with that and this is just one piece of it and there are many other pieces which is why i'm okay i feel okay about saying this bit um just because it's how you interact with the video game but what you can do is jump into the plot board the same way you would with the case notes so i I think what's interesting about saga anderson's story is like the case notes and the pin board are asking like what is real like what what do we know for sure about this which of course like is going to get challenged because this game is all about challenging reality and and meta narrative and all that kind of stuff But with Alan's thing specifically, it's jumping into the plot board and saying like, you know, Alan was standing in the subway tunnel investigating and then there are a bunch of different options. You can start to find different options. So like one of them might be the cultists. And when you say that Alan was in the subway tunnel investigating the cultists, the subway tunnel changes based on cult activity in the subway tunnel. Or if you change it from cultists to arsonists, it might change to like there are fires everywhere and everything is like ablaze. And doing so allows you to navigate the environment in different ways because different activity in those different places will dramatically change those places. So you have literally what happened in Alan Wake 1 of him writing this story and changing reality in Bright Falls, but you get to experience that as the player and like literally write the narrative that gets him through and out of the different things that are happening in his storyline. And it's so cool. It's like miraculous. It's like, it's such a magic trick every time you do it. I love it. It's really, really cool. I also like how the material you use for weapon upgrades, for Anderson at least, are ripped up pages of the memoir. <laughs> yeah. You find them in like a lunchbox. There's also there's also a mystery about her daughter mm-hmm. um, that I won't say too much about, but like that seems to be one of the like more personal beats of her story. This is actually one of my, one of my bristling things with both Control and Alan Wake 2 is the the gaminess of it sometimes gets in the way for me like i i think that they do a really good job of like telling the story via the medium of video games but there are a lot of cases where i'm like do i need to be upgrading my shotgun damage by 14 percent based on how many manuscript <laughs> pages i found in lunchboxes that are secrets that i like went out of my way to discover even though i'm supposed to be doing something else it's a little bit of the fallout 4 
plot problem in that way where I'm like, it doesn't make sense for Saga to be running around and checking this stuff out in particular. Yeah, that's true. I'll have to see how it feels for me the deeper I get into it. I think like I like at least how they're able to. It's not just like, oh, you get like gold to upgrade your gun. It's just like you it's ripped up pages of the story. Yeah. So I think, I think at least that is interesting. And also finding them in like a child's lunchbox like raises some questions. There's even yeah. a whole case board for that. So like yeah. I do think there's enough at least for Agent Anderson to be like, OK, I want to like all the information could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe that's a bit of a stretch. But yeah, it just reminds me a bit of control where control got so much into like you're finding artifacts and there's like loot boxes where you're like finding different random (laughs) drops that will upgrade your stuff that like didn't aid the story or didn't make sense and wasn't additive to what they were trying to say thematically with control and there are some there are some bits of that i think in alan wake 2 also where i'm like yeah, that was that was my main issue with control most notably that like the game was so weird and interesting and you just ran around with a gun for most of it like i just feel like the yeah. like you got some cool powers eventually but i just feel like it could have been so much more creative with sort of the action of the game mm-hmm. whereas i think alan wake and alan wake 2 both feel more designed around a central theme of of light and discovery yes you know so I think it works better mechanically for that reason. Yeah. I'm so excited for you to play more of it. There's yeah, it's there's some stuff you haven't seen yet that I think you're going to they're going to blow your fucking socks off. It's one of those sequels where it's like not only is this like probably significantly better than the first game, but it makes the first game more interesting too. Yeah. Like I feel like it, it's one of those things where that like retroactively makes me think about and that's probably their goal is like unifying all this stuff. I mean, you do uh, not really a spoiler very early on. You can run into two guys who work for the control FBI, basically. Yeah, and it's kind of a fun moment because there's this sort of tension between the FBI and sort of the local sheriffs. There's kind of like a little bit of a yeah. class thing there and like, oh, you city folk and stuff. Yeah. Um, but then there's that again with the people in control. They're like FBI. They're like, what are your children? You have no idea what's going on. Yeah, here. exactly. Like you might be fictional characters. We don't know. <laughs> like. <laughs> basically talking into fan fiction right now let me do my job um but uh yeah it's it is a incredible game i i think you're right i mean this year has just been non-stop with like specifically in triple a because i think you know there's always great games coming out every year we've been doing the show for five years and like every time we get to goatee it's like a nightmare of what to choose but i do think like i think because the last couple of years have just been full of so many like you know uh postponed releases and like i don't know i just just, it's interesting like not to distinguish like oh triple a and indie and like different spheres but i think it is it is to me exciting to see this game be a triple a game you know a game like this weird and this ambitious and also like pretty concise from what i know it's like a 20 hour game tops yeah, I'm I didn't even realize I actually I looked up a guide just to see the chapter names, just to see how far into the game I was. And I've played eight hours of the game and I am on the second to last chapter. Yeah, I just think it's like I think it's important to see like big budget games like this also kind of push things forward, you mm-hmm. know, because I think we see a lot of games either play it safe or try to be like an everything Swiss Army Knife game. And I'm, I'm just glad we also get stuff like Alan Wake, too. Totally. Can I not to end on a on a more negative note, but I just have one question for you, because I think my actual biggest gripe with Alan Wake 2 is that it is too realistic at times and I am constantly (laughs) lost in the woods. Yeah, this is actually this is what happened to me with Kenna. 
uh, Bridge of Spirits, yeah. which is notably made by a like unbelievably talented animation studio, yeah, uh, or group group of animators, I should say. They did actually full circle. They did the Majora's Mask video from oh, I think yeah. like 2016, 2015. Yeah. Kenna was their first game, and like while the characters look amazing and the animation's great, the environments are so pretty and alive, but they are hard to read. Yeah. Like it's hard to know where to go. And not that you have to make an environment ugly to communicate paths, but like it's it's separate from just making it look as good or realistic as possible. Yeah. There's a reason why Breath of the Wild was like, what if everything was orange that you haven't done yet? So you can just see no matter the time of day like oh i haven't done these things yeah and there, i mean there are a lot of people uh giving resident evil 4 remake flack for like painting ladders that you can climb yellow and stuff it's like well the reason people do that is because in playtesting people don't know that you can interact with the ladder like yeah if, exactly if more people than not say that in playtesting then they'll have to change there's that. a way to do it gracefully but i mean especially in resident evil 4 when you, it's so tense it is helpful to know like oh okay these things i can interact with yes but yeah i i honestly one of the weakest moments of the game for me is the very beginning i had no idea where to go yeah, i was lost me for too. like 20 minutes because it was just like <laughs> it was so dark and like the path forward i just sort of stumbled into it eventually because like there are some paths that are like notably blocked by like fallen trees and stuff but yeah. then some of the paths you actually have to go through you can just walk through like branches and things mm -hmm. thankfully the map is pretty helpful like that does help a lot uh, what's also very chilling is that when they teach you about the mind place they also make a note of saying you're not safe when you're here so like if you enter the mind place in you know an area where you're surrounded by enemies yeah. i'm just i haven't done that yet and i'm wondering if it just like pulls you back to reality or if they internalize that in some way in the mind place mm -hmm. like someone comes to the door or something yeah it's a good question it kind of reminds me of uh the fourth silent hill which was called the room which i haven't played much of but that whole game like you had like a weird hub there was like a safe room the room uh but as the game continued it got more and more dangerous to be there oh, so like it starts off as your safe haven but then gets like creepier as time goes on i'm curious to play that one again i especially after playing alan wake and alan wake 2 i'm like very increasingly antsy to eventually do a silent hill episode with you because i feel like they actually weirdly share a lot in common mm. specifically silent hill 2 um i feel like james and alan wake would be in the same creative writing class anyway <laughs> it, alan wake 2 is incredible uh highly recommend it's really good yeah you're gonna like yeah. it a lot more when uh when you get further in i think too so maybe maybe we bring it back i'll probably be done with it by next week if i was to guess yeah yeah i definitely want to this it's one i want to finish before game of the year i'm, I'm also like in full goatee prep mode right now it's kind of I, I always enjoy this like revisiting games throughout the year and alan wake 2 is one that like i don't think it's realistic to finish everything we play for this show we would truly not be able to yeah but this is one that i think is like reasonable to finish and i also think it's a game that i think like should be seen through based on what they're setting up yeah I agree. So I totally agree. Yeah. And honestly, I'm just I'm just curious. Like the story is incredible. The first yeah. the first day I played this game, I literally just like stayed inside. I had plans and I was like, I'm just going to stay inside all day and play Alan Wake. <laughs> That's all I wanted to do was just play the game. And I did like late into the night and it was great. Um, Yeah. Oh, God. Go deep prep. It's going to be wild. I'm like <laughs> the bit the big question mark for me is like going back to Tears of the Kingdom and getting back into that game. It's going to be like such an endeavor. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. I feel like the same thing happened with Breath of the Wilds, where like when I finally got us, I got my switch in 2018, a year after Breath of the Wild came out and like right when we started our show. So like I didn't really get a chance to just like fall 
solely into Breath of the Wild the way a lot of people did because mm-hmm. we had just started into the Aether, a low-key video game podcast, and I was playing everything. Yeah. So like, I feel like it wasn't until we did our bonus with our friend Sadie that I was able to like go back to that and really fall into it, which was such a joy. And then Tears of the Kingdom, I did play a lot of that launch, but we were in the thick of Dreamcast prep. So yeah. I feel like I'm like about maybe a third of the way into the main story and I have like 50 hours which in Tears of the Kingdom <laughs> talk is basically like five, you know, like mm. everyone I know has at least like a hundred plus in that game. Yeah. So yeah, I think I crossed the hundred mark, but yeah, I'm, there's, there's a lot of really wonderful games. I, uh, by the end of the year, I probably will also have finished Baldur's Gate three, at least two and a half times. It's unbelievable. Mathematically. I already have because I finished the game <laughs> once with one character and I've gotten three other characters to act two. So like, if you add all of that up, <laughs> I've like actually be in the game several times. That's- um, incredible yeah but i digress i the two playthroughs of that i i I beat i beat it once i didn't miss a lot like i kind of at a certain point i just sort of was like i'm doing what is most important to me because i know i'm going to play this again and i don't need to do everything yeah i made another character who was more of like my leisurely playthrough then i made a dirge dark urge character which i brought to the show i want to see through that story for sure because that's like notably different enough i want to see how that goes yeah specifically resisting the urge and trying to be a hero and then i have a character named snout who is a warlock bard who i'm obsessed with he looks like if johnny from ff7 was in an emo band i love him and that's a multiplayer campaign so i'm like i definitely want to finish dirge and i want to see through a multiplayer session i feel like that would be like a fun triple threat of Baldur's gate 3 to have experienced mm, yeah yes anyway <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I wonder if it will make my list. Anyway, um, why don't we move on to our next game? I had to put Baldur's Gate at number 11, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> And we always say the 10th spot is the hardest one to figure out. And <laughs> I, I will say, I, while we're talking about it, I will say that there are, I, I have an unhinged spreadsheet of like games that I would consider, like there are at least like 30 games that I would like, if you just asked me like gut check, would I want to put them in my top 10? Yes. Yeah. So, and there are eight games that I like refuse to take off. So I basically have to like close to a dozen games to see which other two i want to put in yeah i have yeah i mean i I have a backlogged list of like all the things that i'm considering for game of the year for the top 10 and it is 39 games at the moment (laughs) not not to like i don't want to like mystify my opinion but it is a really fun exercise and it's just a testament of how strong this year was that like we want to celebrate all these games but like it 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 is challenging but fun to like limit it to just 10 oh yeah yeah i think i think this is going to be just one of the most interesting years of game of the year like ever just for all the different publications i'm just like so curious to see what everybody's list ends up being i will say that i was hanging out with our friend of the show chris plant a couple weeks ago and i showed him my list while we were hanging out and he just said this is fucked up (laughs) (laughs) which means i'm on the right track (laughs) yeah i you know you and i have like mostly fallen in line for the past few years i think the first year and maybe 2021 was where we were the most different i wonder if we're gonna be different again this year i will i can tell you right now that yes we will be different this year (laughs) okay i I know i know for like it's a fact for me yeah i think we have enough experience that if we do have to like get into a debate it will not be heated or personal yeah but it will be passionate and and confident yeah Yeah. okay on that note why don't we move on hunkai star rail game of the year (laughs) Goodbye. It's pretty fun. Bye-bye. Brendan. Steven. There is yet another game that you and I both played that we're going to talk about this episode, but I think we wanted to first address two other 
somewhat related games. We gotta warm up. We gotta warm up. We, we gotta can't... do crunches. We gotta eat our veggies. <laughs> we gotta eat our veggies, which in this case is Square Enix's Final Fantasy XIV: A Realm Reborn. I mentioned in the last few weeks that I that I'm back into FF14. I feel like part of our audience is like cheering and yelling and screaming and crying and throwing up and. Another part of our audience is like, doing please. all of those same thing, the same verbs, just in but a negative, negative way. <laughs> yeah, they're like, please stop trying to convince me to pay a monthly subscription fee for something that I truly don't need in my life. And yeah. I get it. Both both can be true. Inside of me, there are two Azorias, whatever it's called. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I have actually finished A Realm Reborn. I'm done. I have seen the opening, the end credits of A Realm Reborn and the opening title uh is a title crawl is it the word title card the, the open yeah the title card of heaven's word i'm in it i'm in ishgard the irony is ishgard is like super depressing as a place i've been like building it up like oh, i can't wait to get there and i'm like ooh, this is like if midgar was also a theocracy <laughs> this is kind of a bummer um <laughs> but uh i am so excited so for those who don't know like uh final fantasy 14 obviously mmo it's divided into like expansion camp campaigns that are each kind of their own game and a realm reborn is the first one and is generally considered the weakest you and i love it i think there's i I think like it is simultaneously like probably the weakest one but also does a great job at like endearing you to the world and to your character like i I think it is good setup could it have been a hundred hours shorter absolutely (laughs) uh there are like truly could it have been an email maybe could it have been an email probably you can also just like pay a, a, a fee basically like you can pay to just get right to heaven's word um, or any of the expansions from what I know. I'm, I'm of two minds about it. I think on one hand, if you're if you're just like realistically, I don't have the time and energy to go through a realm reborn, then that's probably the move. If you want to experience like the good stuff. Yeah. But it's just like a, it's like a good TV show where it's like, OK, the first season might not be the show, but like. There is something to be said about getting that set up and seeing it grow over time. Right. So my thing is, like, if you're playing FF14 and you're enjoying A Realm Reborn at all, I do think there's payoff in in seeing it through. Mm -hmm. Take your time with it. You know, I think if you like, honestly, I'm kind of glad I spread it out over the course of three years because I feel like if I if I made it like my job to get through it, I would have really resented it. You know, Mm -hmm. like. Mm I did kind of like muscle through a lot of it uh, the past month or so. I I was talking in the Discord with people in the Final Fantasy channel. It is, I'm not going to spoil it, but it is like genuinely funny how much the plot like pops off in the last cutscene of A Realm Reborn. (laughs) Like, like I think overall the story is kind of a slow burn. Like it starts off, you're just like new to a place, you're doing fetch quests, and then kind of becomes like a very traditional Final Fantasy Star Wars type story where you save the world and it's all nice i think the 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 quests that are kind of like the post-game campaign in between a realm reborn and heavensward are known for being like tedious and a lot of fetch quests and a lot of like teleporting here to talk to this person and then you teleport back and you talk to them and that was the quest congratulations uh here's a new pair of boots um but i think there's there's something about it where like a lot of the story in that quest line is trying to figure out like how do we make the world the best possible place to be now that we've saved it 
like, okay, we've saved the world. What comes next? I yeah. think I touched on that last time I brought it up. I found that to be really interesting. And I think the further you get into it and the more they're setting up Heavensward, because Heavensward takes place in a city called Ishgard, which I mentioned. And Ishgard is like the northernmost faction of this land and they have been like historically neutral like they they kind of just have like their gates closed to outsiders they they rarely like help out the rest of the of the country mm. and one of the big missions of, of alphano your like main ally in the game and sort of like the main character in some ways is he's trying to get Ishgard to like sign this treaty. So he's basically trying to get like every possible party to agree to like world peace and be like, cool, now we actually saved the world. Yeah. Like we've like foundationally saved it. And of course it doesn't work out. And a lot of the last, like it, it's actually kind of funny, like before you start this sort of like final, like genuinely 45 minutes of cutscenes that ends a realm reborn, the game warns you like, Hey, like, there's going to be a lot of story. Like, just make sure you're like good to watch it for a bit. Um, <laughs> I, I love that. It was really cool. Like characters I thought I didn't care at all about. I was suddenly like cheering for. And I think it's a really strong setup for what Heaven's Word is. Mm. And it's also kind of a brilliant way to like reset the stakes for an MMO. Like even just the idea of having it take place in a city that has been like historically cut off from the rest of the world, I think is a great way to like add a new city without it feeling like why wasn't this here in the early campaign you know um like it makes narrative sense that you weren't able to go to ishgard right away but ishgard is like the same size and scale as like limsa lamensa or gradania like it's another city of that size but no one is in it like when you teleport to gradania or ulda or limsa lamensa there's like dozens of people like wearing their coolest outfit you know <laughs> riding around in the car from ff15 there was recently a fall guys collaboration so in between these like high stakes narrative beats i had to like excuse myself past like fall guys minions <laughs> so was like, which was like kind of disorienting um it really rewired my brain a bit i think but yeah i'm i'm very early on in heaven's word but i because i kept just like you know, all you hear about from FF14 fans is how great the story is once you get into the later expansions. And like, I believe them, but I was like, I just kind of like need to see it to like really understand what it is. Because I hear about how great it is, but I don't hear about like what's actually happening. It's like one of the most spoiler averse fandoms that exists that's like a good I just, point I, I yeah not one says that and i wonder if it's just like the complexities of what's happening because it is sure. such like a a global scale kind of uh game of thronesy thing yeah yeah there's a lot and it also requires so much like prior knowledge of things yeah but uh i'm just i'm really excited to get into it because i'm really like gripped by the main plot of heaven's word and i also now have access to the new classes they added it's kind of weird like you technically even if you're not far enough along in the story you can like you technically have whatever expansion you have up to like all that is in the game but there are some like level checks for like what you can take so the the classes they added initially in heaven's word were dark knight uh astrologian and then machinist so like machinist is range dps which i've always read as machinist maybe it's machinist i might be mispronouncing that i don't know there's, who's there's right? also like yeah it's either one sounds cool but that class is essentially like um if you have ever played ff6 edgar uh who like uses the chainsaw and like a bunch of different machinery to do damage it's essentially that like you're you have like 
kind of a steampunk arsenal of like guns and stuff, which is pretty cool. Dark Knight is what it says. It's 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 a dark night and you're one of the handful of tanks. It is genuinely funny how few tanks and healer classes they are. They just keep adding DPS and like adding to the weight lines of of any, you know, duty or raid. And then there's Astrologian, which is a healer class and it's entirely rooted through astrology and tarot, and I have been dying to play this class. Um and it's really fun. I think it's tough to make healer interesting. I think that's actually one of the things I initially loved about Overwatch was like all the healer classes in that game, I think played really uniquely. Like Mercy was probably the most like traditional healer, kind of played like the medic in TF2, but Lucio and Zenyatta were like so interesting and unique. Yeah. And like having it be like, oh, Lucio is like an AOE healer. So he can't like really, you know, he's not going to be like a singular healer, but he's going to be like with the group and he can speed them up too. Like, I love that kind of stuff. And, and Astrologian is, is like, you have like AOE heals that heal everybody. You have singular heals, but the unique thing is that you can also draw from your tarot deck and that will give like a random buff to the party when you choose to play it. So you can either just like draw and then play the card right away and everyone gets the buff or you can like wait for the right time to use it or you can actually like redraw and try to get the best possible buff for that scenario. So there's like a little like mini game within your kind of main like loop of abilities. It's really fun. So far I played as a bard, a red mage and a astrologian. Bard I'm just most familiar with so I feel like it comes easiest to me and it's one of the more approachable classes but I really I'm excited to dabble with healer and see how that feels so never wait in line ever again yeah, that's kind of like I I like that you can just be all the classes with one character but I also just from my own you know headcanon I like choosing classes that I can like envision my character as so the only tank that I can kind of see my character being would be gunbreaker which is basically squall or leon from kingdom hearts and, and ff8 we're like in that order yes yeah <laughs> you have a, you have a gun blade and you like are are a tank but like you know you have this cool weapon so i might i might do that eventually but for now i'm i'm fully into the tarot class can i ask you a question about this game yes that that occurred to me when you sent me a screenshot of you in the magitek armor from final fantasy 6 <laughs> yes and now that you've explained that you can play with a gun blade or et cetera, or as a machinist, yeah, uh, et cetera, is there a in-universe reason why there's a lot of other Final Fantasy stuff showing up in this game? So it's never like, I mean, there's tons of Easter eggs. Like, there's a place called Costa del Sol just in the universe of FF14. That's a setting yeah. from FF7, but it's a different place. It's a different. It's a different Costa del Sol. Yeah. So it's kind of like that where like like one of the raids you have to do in A Realm Reborn is like a huge nod to Final Fantasy 3. Like the final raid boss is like the final boss of that game. Hmm. So it's not like they're explicitly saying like, oh my God, it's it's Sid from FF7, you know, but like, yeah, there is a Sid in this game. But it's FF14 Sid. Yeah. Well, where, where this game, I think, is interesting is like there's always that stuff in Final Fantasy, right? There's always a Biggs and a Wedge. There's always a Sid, as you mentioned. Casa del Sol has shown up m multiple times in different yeah. Final Fantasy games. And it's just like reinterpretations of the same thing. But like when you send me, here is actually the Magitech armor <laughs> yeah. that Terra is is riding in in the beginning of Final Fantasy VI is where I'm like, oh, are they trying to blur the line here? Or is this some well, kind of like multiverse thing going on? It's definitely not a multiverse thing, at least currently. Cross your fingers. Um, but like uh, the Magitech armor is used by the Garlean Empire in the story. So like it is actually 
oh. something you see. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. There's, I mean, having a Fall Guy minion, there's no, I mean, yeah. I would love if there was lore explaining that, but I, I don't <laughs> need it. So like, I, th- I think for like the minions and for the mounts, like there's a little bit more like, hey, we're having fun with this. Like, <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen someone driving in the FF15 car, for example, like, yeah. So there's some stuff that just like, okay, this is just like fun collaborations. But for the most part, like the fiction of FF14, even though it's like kind of a collage of other games, is very much its own fully realized world. Mm. That helps you frame it a bit. That does help me. Yeah. What were you laughing at with the with the Fall Guys? What, what were you thinking about? I feel like you had a thought formulating there. I did. I was just writing down an episode title. <laughs> I just when so in PS5 when you're like hovering over a game the theme of the game is just like whatever is like currently in the news for that game basically yeah. if it's like a live service game or an MMO and for FF14 it's a bunch of FF14 characters running through a Fall Guys like obstacle course and I'm like oh my god this is truly a nightmare oh my god yeah this is the multiverse I don't want even though yeah. I like Fall Guys and I like FF14 and just Seeing them together is is truly bizarre. Now that's a multiverse of madness. <laughs> oh, anyway, that's my FF14 update. I think uh, I might share more as I go. I think eventually I'd love to do like an episode about like Heavensward or Shadowbringers, like once I've seen it. But you know, it's it's a big thing. So I'm just happy that it's a huge I'd, like, endeavor. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of focusing. Like, that's kind of for me. I see FF14 as like you know we have to be a bit diligent with like what games we're playing for the show and like what games are just sort of playing for fun but not necessarily planning on bringing up and i think ff14 might for the most part be like just something i play to unwind you know it's like not something i have to bring up every week if there's something that like inspires me or is exciting to talk about i can bring it up like like i'm doing now but i think that's kind of i'll chip away at it slowly over time it's kind of how i see it in that same vein, I just want to give an update on uh, the the games that I've been playing on the subway to work uh, sure, now that yeah. I'm going to the office a lot, because I feel like I, for both you and I, I don't know if it is as true for you as it is for me. Maybe it is. Tell me. <laughs> but I've been like kind of just really dying to sink my teeth into a, 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 like a big RPG again yeah. um, in like a pretty major way. And it seems like you've kind of found it in MMO form via Final Fantasy 14. And I've brought up in the past that I I have the Retroid Pocket Flip, which I bring with me pretty much every day. Uh, And it's like a great little device to have in my pocket for the subway, which I love. Um, And on that, I've been playing Dragon Quest IV recently, which we talked about a bit in the DS episode because the DS remake of that game is just amazing. And if you've played the um, mobile version, it's it's the same one. So if you don't have a DS and can't play it, go get the mobile version. It's great. But I'm playing it. I'm playing the DS version on the Retroid Pocket Flip right now. And it's a it's still a really wonderful game. The other game I'm playing a lot is Fantasian, which uh, similarly is just like a really wonderful game to have on your phone and currently is like kind of only available on your phone or on your Apple device of choice. If you have Apple Arcade, it was from that second round of Apple Arcade games, um, which it's worth mentioning. There is a listing for Fantasian that showed up in the database of Steam recently. Um, so there's a possibility that game might finally be more applicable. Yeah. yeah and just like playable by more people, which I think will be great, especially considering how well that game works with a mouse and keyboard specifically it's great with a touchscreen and was built for the touchscreen but also is great with a mouse and keyboard the weird 
missing link there is it's like just okay with a controller still playable but like just okay yeah um but if you don't remember or haven't listened to our episodes talking about fantasia which there are a couple um it's a game by miss walker studios uh which is led by hironobu sakaguchi who is the creator of final fantasy um who eventually left square enix and uh went on to make his own studio and just kind of make like one-off projects here and there for different companies i think most notably the ones that a lot of people point to are lost odyssey and blue dragon which are games that were greenlit by Xbox Studios when they wanted more of a pull in Japan because the Xbox was selling so poorly there. They were like, let's get the guy who made Final Fantasy to create two new intellectual properties for the Xbox exclusively. Both of those games, hits and misses in different ways. We've had episodes talking about both of them. Um, you can you can dip into those and find out. And it feels like Apple is kind of pulling from a similar vein that's like, for Apple Arcade, we like really want some showpieces. We really want some things we can point to and be like, this wouldn't exist if not for us. And this is a real draw for apple arcade and fantasian was that game it is i think notable in that they used kind of like google maps s cameras to create actual physical models of the places you run around in and and like turn them into 3d objects that you can you can run around in yeah they made dioramas it's almost like a, we describe it as like a modern reinterpretation of the pre-rendered backgrounds in like the playstation final fantasies yes, exactly yeah. so so you're you're like a 3d animated character running around in these like actual dioramas that that the team built um, which is like obviously an extremely difficult undertaking and there's a lot of great interviews about how they were managed to do that but the thing that's most notable about Fantasian I think to me and to you in our conversations about it before part two came out was it's just like such a breezy time and it's such an easy game to get into and it's such an obvious game to hand to people who like have never played a turn-based RPG before yeah it just feels like such a great entry point into the genre in general because of the ease of just like dragging your finger from the attack you want to do to the enemy you want to hit the innovations of being able to take that attack and sometimes slice through multiple enemies so you're kind of doing what feels very natural like to people who have played games on their phone before where you're like lining enemies up and then dragging across multiple enemies and hitting all of them at the same time i think in terms of the story it's like really pretty bare bones and i think you and i kind of agree is like maybe not the best but at least is like breezy enough that you don't really need to focus on it overall the tone is pretty carefree like i think yeah. where it's weakest is when it tries to be super high stakes but like mm -hmm. interviews with sakaguchi i feel like he's said something to the effect of like we just wanted to kind of like retread our our history a bit and just like do yeah. the do the stuff we're good at and have fun with yeah and you can feel that through the whole project like it just feels like everyone was excited to work on it you know it has that yeah. energy to it yeah and I think I think one of the most interesting innovations from this game that I love and is one of the reasons why I feel like it's such a great entry point to a lot of people for the genre in general is just this idea of what they call in the game the dimension, yeah. which is this device that you can carry with you that you can turn on and off at will. And when you turn it on, anytime you would run into a random encounter battle, which they do have in this game, but anytime you would have run into one, those enemies just go into that little device instead. And you can postpone when you do the random encounter battles until later if you want to. The, the trade-off is that it only has a certain amount of enemies it can contain at a certain time. And if you hit that limit, then you have to immediately fight all of them at once. So anytime 
you know, for the, the max is 30, but like, if you get to a point where it's like, oh, I'm at 10 or 15, I've explored the area that I wanted to explore. I'm standing next to a safe point so I can like heal or whatever in case something goes wildly wrong in this battle. Let me do the dimension fight and then just fight everybody in there. Um, and then there's like specific mechanics for the combat in the dimension. It's just really fun. And I think kind of sands off a lot of the edges that a lot of people bump into when they play these kinds of games or say they don't like these kinds of games. Like I think, I think it has a lot of really innovative ways of kind of skirting around the problems that a lot of people have with these games whether it be the way the menus work in combat or the random encounter battles or the story being like way too complex like weirdly the the story being just okay in this game is kind of a strength in that way where it's like you don't have to focus on it too much you just need to get the gist of it and then being able to like bail on random encounter battles i just think it's really great the big hitch here is that you and i talked very fondly about this game when it came out and then they eventually released a part two where you had played it and you were like it just ratchets up the difficulty pretty substantially which i think raises some questions for me and honestly leans into i think the worst tendencies of miss walker's games which is the difficulty because my hope for fantasian was like kind of like gorillas like Damon Albarn and Gorillaz, every time they release a new Gorillaz album, Damon Albarn's like, that's my last album. See you later. No more Gorillaz. We're done. Here in Obasaki Gucci has a couple times been like, I'm out. Same thing with like Hayao Miyazaki and, Gib- and Studio Ghibli is just like, I'm out. I'm done making movies. And it's like The Boy and the Heron, for example, supposed to be the last Ghibli movie. He's already back in the studio making another one. Yeah. Point being, Fantasian seemed to me like the team that like made the best Final Fantasy stuff you've ever played getting together and saying this is going to unlock for you if you're not a fan of the genre already. This is going to unlock for you our history and our past. If you play Fantasian, you will understand the best of what we've done in the past. And will this will allow you to almost like a Rosetta Stone, go back and enjoy those previous games that we worked on. Yeah which I think is like a really beautiful conceit. And then unfortunately kind of fumbles in act two, which I haven't hit again, to be clear on this playthrough, but I am like about eight to 10 hours in again uh, on this game. I started from scratch. I was like, I want to go back to the beginning and man, are those first eight to 10 hours just so fucking incredible. It's great. There isn't really a dividing line. Like it just sort of abruptly ends. They kind of released it in two halves. And right. then the second half just picks up right away. It does for fans of FF6, it kind of has a similar world of balance world of ruin you know duology there but and just in terms of like the first half is very linear and like on the rails and then the second half is open you can kind of like there's a recommended level for all the things you can do but you can do them in any order but i think it was a mix of like there is a difficulty spike and i also hadn't played it in so long like that combination made Mm, me feel like i'm not invested enough emotionally in this to like put in what's being asked of me yeah because it came out like eight to ten months after the first part came out and you and i like pretty much ripped through the first part within the first like month yeah i also think i I might be wrong but i remember reading that like the second half is also twice as long so it's a long game and i think that's that might be a disservice to the tone and like easy breezy nature of most of it because like it starts off as that and then becomes like, never mind, this is an 80 hour gauntlet <laughs> for like, <laughs> you know, but the, the thing is the combat is really good. So I do wonder if I, I, I've been also thinking about revisiting it and like getting back to that point. And I, I would guess that if you get to that point of act two, just on your own and not having that big gap, it would maybe be a little bit less abrupt, but even still, it's very hard. Like it yeah. is, it is an, ex- it, it feels like, um, if the post game of Dragon Quest 11 was mandatory, that's kind mm. of the level 
I remember you described to me before I got there, there was a boss where it's like every turn they like do a powerful attack, heal themselves and poison you. And yes. that's just like every <laughs> like that's and that's kind of how Fantasian feels in the second half. But yeah, I'm interested to get there. I, I think just like you with Final Fantasy 14, both Dragon Quest four and Fantasian are kind of my like. I'm just going to chip away at these and eventually yeah. when I bring them back to the show, it'll be for a reason. Dragon Quest 4, I just never saw the end of when we were playing it for the DS. And I just I loved so much of that game. So I'm excited to get there. Yeah. Uh, but Fantasian, I just really want to hit part two and like really kind of form an opinion on it because I, I felt like it had been too long for me to really get back into it. There's a lot of really cool ideas and I like how uniquely all the characters play. And I think the biggest appeal of the second act is that you get total freedom over like how to build the characters and who's in your party. And there's like a lot of really cool things to do with them there. Yeah. Um, so like, like I loved the robot characters so much. They were so good. Yeah. It's, it's a great time. I definitely, you're making me want to go back to it. So once I beat Shadowbringers in 2038, I'll eventually get back to Fantasian. I just, I just think for you, dear listener out there, if you haven't played Fantasian and it does get released outside of Apple Arcade and that's the reason you weren't playing it, absolutely check it out. No question. Yeah, even if, totally. even if you just play the first 30 hours or whatever, like it's an incredible video game for those yeah. 30 hours. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's honestly great for it's one of those like it's great for new fans. It's great for old fans, too. I think if, especially if you're a fan of like the PS1 era, it feels a lot like a less narratively ambitious Final Fantasy nine. Like it reminds me of nine a lot specifically. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think I think playing Fantasian is making me really want to finally do nine. But also, just like with us constantly waiting for the eventual switch ports of Wind Waker and Twilight Princess, I feel like the on the horizon possibility of some kind of remastered version of nine is like Damocles sword hanging over us. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see if if uh, if a nine remake will happen or what that will even look like. So I think it's it's kind of a nine is an interesting era being at the very end of PS1, like that game and Chrono Cross. I think still look incredible. Um, but I, you know, I'm curious what they would seek to change or refine in that, in that visual style. Yeah. Yeah. Same with all of that. I think that that preamble, that RPG preamble, I think we should take a break and come back and talk about our last game of the week. Yeah. I thought this would be like a easy breezy. We, we basically did what Fantasia did to us with this topic where we thought yeah. it was going to be lighthearted and then like a was... five to 10 minute segment that is yeah. <laughs> now running hour. long. <laughs> Whoops. Okay. We'll be back with, star ocean see you soon bye-bye hello we're back hello we're talking about uh, a new old release yet another huge remake releasing in the year 2023 i think probably less of a huge deal to most than things like resident evil 4 or metroid prime <laughs> or i don't know dead space dead space yeah pick pick them out of a hat but this is star ocean the second story r uh, the R standing for remake, which just released on Switch and Xbox and PlayStation and I think PC as well. Cross-platform release. Uh, I'm playing it on Switch. Are you also playing it on Switch? Yeah, me too. Yeah, just really fucking good on Switch. Yeah. Um, if you don't know about Star Ocean, uh, it is just another long-running RPG franchise. Been around forever. Uh, there was a remake of the first part. It was called Star Ocean First Departure R that came out on Switch. I think, I want to say early in the Switch's life cycle or, you know, it was a couple of years ago at least. Yeah. Um, which... I played. Did you play that? You recommended it to me and I put it on my backlog and it, it's just one of those things where I'm like always wanting to play and I never get to. Yeah. So I played it and I did enjoy it, but it is so different than what we have here. What they've done with the second story is a complete overhaul of the game in like almost every single way. Um, you know, it 
still is mostly the same mechanically, but just like visually and presentationally is just yeah. like on a completely different level. Because First Departure was a good game and I enjoyed playing it, um, but it definitely looked like kind of an upscaled remake or an upscaled like remaster of, you know, a PS1 game. Uh, whereas the second story is coming at it, the perspective of a studio that has now decided that the 2D, 3D thing is going to be like their vibe for remakes, right? I think Octopath Traveler coming out and that that studio has just engendered this this feeling within Square Enix, at least, you know, from the outside looking in that this is the right art style to use if they want to take old games from their backlog. Like uh, Live Alive got a similar treatment. Mm -hmm. And Dragon Quest uh, 3 is apparently getting one as well. I would assume a game like Chrono Trigger will get one eventually. Like it just feels like this is what they're going to go with for pretty much all of these games, which I'm not against, to be totally clear. I think what's really interesting about the second story R is that it has a different version of the 2D, 3D yeah. aesthetic than all of the other games that we just talked about, where games like Octopath and from that studio have this idea of like, okay, we're going after the sprite work of that era. We're going after the sprite work of like the late 80s, early 90s, the Super Nintendo era, and even like the early PlayStation era of games. All of the environments are also pixel art. Like they're also made out of out of pixels, but they're given depth and they're given uh, like space in a world, which creates the 2D, 3D aesthetic that we're talking about. They have kind of like a tilt shift energy. Um, so you feel like you're looking into like little models and dioramas and stuff. Star Ocean, the second story is coming at it from a different angle where all of the character work and all of the sprite work of like the enemies you fight and the characters you play as and the NPCs in the world, those are all sprite work. But the world itself is like a really beautiful, I don't want to say realistic because there's definitely a lot of art direction there, but it's, it's a, grounded in realism for sure. It's grounded in realism and it's not pixel art. And I think yeah. that that clash between the pixelated characters and the background I thought was going to be a little bit jarring, but actually works beautifully. And one of the things that I think really stands out to me in terms of its aesthetic is the way lighting works is just yeah. like phenomenal. When you're in a forest and running through a forest and like you can see like dappled light shooting through trees and like uh, sun rays shooting out from clouds and stuff, those will interact with the pixelated character art naturally in a way that feels like they are part of the world in a way that doesn't feel like it would make sense when you're looking at it, you know, from, from, I think a thousand foot view, but in movement and in practice is just unbelievable. Like I really encourage you if you haven't seen this to just go look at video of it, because this to me, as much as I love all of those other ones, this is like the pinnacle of 2d, 3d visualization for me at the moment. I, I, I'm just so blown away visually by what this game is. Yeah, I, I, I feel a similar way. I mean, I think it's kind of funny. I feel like there's a part of me that's always ready to be sick of this style and they yeah. just keep getting better at it. Yes. I think you're right to point out that this is like a very different approach, even though it's technically the same style. And I think what really works about it is that and what works for all of these games, if we're kind of lumping like Octopath and Triangle Strategy and Live Alive and this like all in the same bucket I don't know for sure if it's all the same team, but, you know, similar like department of square, I imagine. Yeah. But uh, all those games like Octopath and Octopath 2 both look beautiful, especially Octopath 2. It's like an incredible looking game, but it also because it's, you know, a retro turn based game, everything has to fundamentally sort of be left to right. 
like even when you're walking around the world map everyone's kind of in a line and like yeah you know it has that retro feel even even the more open parts of the world map are like kind of rigid in that way and then even more so in triangle strategy where like even the towns and areas you can explore and talk to people they're all isometric kind of sets of boxes because things will eventually go wrong over salt and then war will begin and you'll have that will then be the arena mm -hmm. the game is about salt in case you missed it uh <laughs> but <laughs> but this game one it's the the battles which we'll get to later are a combination of real time and turn based so there's already like more openness and movement in the battles but like it really struck me like in the so there's also two characters um there's claude and reina uh, we actually I'm playing as Reyna, you played as Claude. So there might yeah. be, I'm actually very excited to hear, we're both pretty early on in the game, so no big spoilers, but we might talk about the early beats. And I'm curious how it's gone for you. But like Reyna's story, she begins in this like medieval village on an alien planet, you know, but to her it's home. And oh. it's just like the first thing that happens is like you're in this town and it's so open. And like the animations of the characters are so impressive. Like it's really hard to pull that off like I, i'm always one of the things i love about chrono trigger is how expressive the characters are with the limited style but like yeah. this is on a whole other level like just the idle animations of like reina tapping her foot or like making a face or or the battle animations where they're like punching stuff like it's so you kind of forget that they're 16-bit after a while you know they just look and i I looked, I wasn't sure what the original game looked like. And just for context, the PS1, it was originally on PS1. It got a PSP port as well, which also looked different. Yeah. But the game looks kind of like a Golden Sun or a Trails game where it's like pre-rendered backgrounds with kind of like Playmobil character models. And I think it was interesting they chose to make them into 16-bit sprites because they weren't that originally. Yeah. But it, I think it does actually work so well. And I think in some ways they might be able to animate the actions better than if they were more like Playmobil-looking figures. Mm. But uh, you posted on threads that you want, you wish the Pokemon remakes looked like this. That was my first thought. Oh my like God, Like being right? in this big town with the grass i'm just like this is you know not not to constantly tell game freak how to make pokemon like everyone on earth does but like <laughs> i just i didn't hate the style of brilliant diamond but i'm like this just would would have fit so much better you know Could you imagine that's the thing i kept thinking about was yeah. specifically this brilliant diamond shining pearl which is like god if this if those games looked like this there would be no complaints there would be yeah. no nobody would say anything except what an incredible looking video game. I mean, I'm sure there would be some complaints because it's Pokemon. That's you true. just can but, yeah. but I know what you mean. Like, I think that would actually maybe please the most people possible. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it looks incredible. And I, I was really excited for this because I think the biggest piece of Aetherbait is like a long running RPG series that you and I have not played. Yeah. And I think I think the thing about Second Story in particular is like a lot of people like First Departure, which was the first one. But Second Story is like the Star Ocean game that yeah. most people point to. Even the fans of when you eventually got to the PS2 era and there was um, I just forgot what it's called. I think it's the Endless Sea or something like that. Those those games, I think, have their fans here and there. But pretty much everyone agrees that the Second Story is like one of the best RPGs ever made. 
made if for the people who have played it. And a lot of that comes from a lot of the choices mechanically for what's going on, but also the fact that the game just feels like almost endless, like it could be if you wanted to be like there is a story you can make your way through, but there's so much other stuff to do that it feels like you could kind of play it forever. And it has like infinite replay value in a lot of ways. There's 99 endings. Yeah, for just like (laughs) there's so many reasons that you would go back and check this game out multiple times. And the idea of this one getting a remake has just been kind of at top of mind for the fans of the series for a long time which you know i wasn't one until i played first departure was like oh okay i'm i'm invested in this eventually happening so when this got announced and looked like this people lost it like people were so stoked about it and for me at least it's been pretty high on the list of things i've been waiting for this year because it just it just seemed like kind of a sure thing like if they could just maintain what people liked about the original and just make it look like this and you're you just kind of have a shoe in for success and I'll, I'll yeah i mean it's it's fucking great like it's yeah, it's it rules. unbelievably good i i haven't been this blown away and this is one of the reasons i want to bring fantasian up but like i haven't been this blown away by an rpg since fantasian in terms of like just a a new a new release hearkening back to something like that like even even octopath which i know you and i are fans of octopath to be clear you liked octopath 2 octopath 2 i think is like they got it like i feel like because octopath 1 i think was like brilliant in some ways and fell short in others octopath 2 really clicked in place for me yeah and as much as i like octopath 2 to be clear uh, this game is just like knocking my socks off and i guess you know to be clear this is not a this is not a new game this is again a remake of an old game but i I just feel like they've done so much to smooth so many edges of the original off and they've presented it in an entirely new way and they've added so much quality of life stuff that it it just feels like revolutionary even though it came out in 1998 yeah i mean it feels i kind of like that we're getting these high quality remakes of you know we talk about remakes a lot because there are constantly remakes being made (laughs) right but i think we also try to navigate like okay you and i both care a lot about game preservation and remakes can sometimes be like in support of or against that idea right they could be replacements or they could yeah or they could be additive right exactly in this case i do think this is like a great act of game preservation because a lot of like live alive and star ocean second story are not household names like ff7 or resident evil 4 like you said earlier like these are games that even you and i people who host a video game podcast and like seek out new games we haven't played these and i think releasing it in this way allows people like you and i people you know who haven't heard of it at all before to like get to experience it for the first time you know which i think is amazing because i don't really know like obviously there's like a financial incentive for making a game like this but like i don't know like i can't see like eyes lit up with profit for reviving star ocean <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, like I think, right. I think it clearly is a work of love to just preserve a classic which you know is so cool to see and uh I have to say, if you are a fan of Sea of Stars, you got to play this. It is kind of funny to me that Sea of Stars ran with Chrono Trigger as their main influence, because to me, this there's so much of this in Sea of Stars. Yeah. The dual protagonists, like the setting, the way, like the combat is different, but like, and you know, the, the, the great thing about Sea of Stars is that it's pulling from a lot of different things. But in my opinion, like if I had played this before Sea of Stars, I would have assumed that was like the main influence they were pulling from. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, which is a good thing to be clear. But <laughs> yeah, I I also love it. I, I think it might be worth just explaining like, I guess, just the premise of it and how it plays. Um, essentially, the premise, as far as I can tell, again, we're playing as different characters. 
and how that works, it's actually not like Sea of Stars. Where Sea of Stars, you choose the protagonist, but it's the same game no matter who you pick. In Star Ocean Second Story, you're getting like most of the same beats, but you're also getting a lot of unique ones. And there are also some characters later on that are exclusive to who you're playing as. So like, I think each character has like one or two characters you can only recruit if you're playing as Claude or Reyna. Um, so Reyna is this young girl who lives in on this planet. I forgot the name of it, but it's the planet that at least Reyna starts on. And the technology is noticeably medieval. So like by all means, it feels like a Final Fantasy village, yeah. even though it's on an alien planet. I think people have like elf ears. It's kind of the only alien thing about it. Although there was one guy that ran past us and Reyna went, he has three eyes. So yes. like there are other aliens here too, I think. And Claude is, I think, from Earth and he is. basically crash lands on this planet. Do you want me to tell you? I could tell you what happens with Claude. Yeah, why don't you tell me? Uh, let's, let's. That will be helpful. Why don't you tell me what happens? Because I think I don't meet Claude until like an hour in. So let's start with Claude and then I'll tell you what's up with Reina. That's very interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the, the, first, the first thing I need to tell you about this game is that when you play as Claude, the opening of it, and you're not going to believe this, starts off with him going, space. <laughs> As you see a starship come into view, and it is just straight up lifting from Star Trek, which yeah. I, I loved. And then, and then, Space. and then the he Final goes, Fantasy. He goes, the realm of infinite possibility. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we get it. I love yeah. it. But anyway, Cla- Claude is an ensign on this starship, and his dad is the admiral. And essentially, they they find this distress signal coming from this like weird planet that doesn't have any life or doesn't have anything on it. But they they just see like kind of like a dark spot on the map, and none of their sensors or anything can pick up what's going on there. So he's like, "We got to set an away team up. We have to go down there." And he's like, "Claude, I want you to go down there and see what's up." And Claude is like, "Don't you think that that's a little bit like I?" He's like, "Above or below my pay grade? Like I don't even really know." but I just think that's like probably not my job. Like, I I just don't know if that makes sense. And his dad is like, well, I'm going down there. And he's like, well, that's definitely below your pay grade. You shouldn't go down there. (laughs) He's like, I would rather go down there myself instead of you going down. And he's like, well, our job is to explore the universe and seek out the unknown. It's, you know, it's just Star Trek. He's like, and, and, that's that's the exploratory mission is what we're doing here on this vessel. So, of course, I'm going to take the opportunity to go down and see something completely new. Uh, and I want you to come with me. So Claude's like, all right, cool. The Admiral leaves the room. And while Claude is walking out of the room, there's all these mutterings amongst the, the crew remaining on the bridge who are like, must be nice being the son of the Admiral, huh? Like, uh nepotism yeah, yeah. The, the the whole nepotism angle and claude's like all right i'm gonna like fucking prove my worth down there so they beam down and they're walking around this space and it's like thunder lightning crashing it's like a really hostile planet but there's this big structure it's like a huge like kind of alien wall and they're trying to figure out how to get into it and they hack into like a computer that's next to it and they they get in there and there's this like big weird like pod looking thing that's like shooting electricity out all over the place and then stops all of a sudden and everybody's like how do we how do we approach this what do we do about this like our sensors aren't picking anything up like how do we how do we investigate this thing and claude's like i know what to do and just walks right up to it and everyone's like no 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 and claude touches it to see what's going to happen and just nothing happens and the, and the admiral is just like that was so dumb get back here right now before something ha-. and as soon as he says that this machine turns on warps claude into the woods on reina's planet mm. um so he just he just wakes up on this planet has no idea how he got there obviously his communication devices don't reach back into space because he doesn't know where he is uh, but that's how he ends up on the planet and runs into reina who is being attacked 
and Claude then saves Reyna from the things that are attacking her. And she immediately is like, you're the hero of legend. Yes. You are you are the prophesized hero because Claude coming from what kind of feels like the future to them, even though it's just like alien planets. He he's standing there in, you know, like Federation Star Trek ass garb, uh, more Star Wars, I would say, than Star Trek in terms of how yeah. he's outfitted. But like, you know, Federation garb and the device he's using to attack people, his like melee device and his like phaser gun look to Reyna like the quote unquote sword of light, which is the 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 weapon that the prophesized hero is supposed to have. So there's this like kind of fun, like miscommunication angle. You know, there's the fish out of water with Claude being like, what the fuck is going on? And Reyna's like, you are, are you are the the prophesized guy. You're going to save the world from the the big calamity. Yeah, it reminds me a lot. There's a, a Star Trek episode in Next Generation where the the big thing with Star Trek is the like biggest rule of the Federation is the Prime Directive, which means like you can't interfere with the natural development or society of a planet. So while the mission is to explore and to like ideally meet new cultures and civilizations and see if they even want to join the Federation you can't like just show up with new technology and like you can't just show up to medieval Europe with an iPhone and just completely alter history. Totally. You know, right. there's an episode of Star Trek where Picard accidentally breaks that rule and they're on a similar planet of people that are like, kind of approaching like middle age renaissance level technology and they see someone get beamed up and you know actually one of them gets beamed up and is in the hospital and like retains memory of that so to him it's like this is the work of gods and he becomes like religious yeah and thinks picard is a god and suddenly is like about to drive them into a dark age where everyone does things in fear of picard's wrath and he's like how do i explain to them i'm just a guy like yeah. i'm just like yes i'm the main character but i'm also just a guy um <laughs> very similar with with claude and reyna um so reyna's beginning is basically like the opening song of beauty and the beast where it's like look that shit goes like that, that whole like <laughs> town number because yeah. she's this like very she's like i think 17 in in the game and like so she's like in her late teens and very spirited and like her mom is like reyna don't get into too much trouble and she's like i love the woods and it's like runs <laughs> off uh, but the thing about Reina is like she's kind of like like everyone loves her and she like make like, you know, she's friends with the mayor and she like goes to this house where like it's just like two orphaned kids and like make sure like they feel maybe they're not orphans, but their parents are missing for some reason. Yeah. And like she she makes an effort to like be part of the community and like help everyone. But also everybody loves Reina and everybody knows Reina. Like there's a there's a bit where you go and have an audience with a king at one point and the king is like, Reina, what's up? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And she's like, you know, you're great. He's like, no, just call me Larry or whatever his name is. Like, uh, but Raina, she's great and like immediately very likable, very like Ghibli heroine energy with her. But she also is like kind of a loner. And there's a mystery to her where like she has healing powers that no one else on the planet has. Yeah. And you also learn pretty early on that like she's adopted. So part of her main quest is to find her biological family and see like why she has the powers she has and, and go from there. I think it's fun and purposeful that the beginning of her story and the beginning of the Claude story are like sci-fi and fantasy, yeah. you know? Cause like, I think this series obviously is trying to blend the two and I think they do a really good job with that. You know, I think it's like it, the sci-fi isn't like too hard sci-fi, but I think it's, it's fun to be on a planet that feels like an RPG town. Um, yeah. that has no knowledge of like space travel or anything, but yeah. So, and then 
this the stories after that point are largely the same but you get like unique beats throughout the beginning where like claude will will go off and do his thing and it will just be reina and vice versa but it's i i think the story early on like i'm still pretty early on in the game overall but like i would say it's like pretty simple for the bulk of it um it's definitely like ramping up and i'm intrigued in where it's going i think the game is really letting the characters shine above everything else like i think it's it's clearly a game where like the interactions are why you're playing it versus like maybe the overarching plot itself yeah because eventually you get more people in the party and one of my favorite mechanics in an rpg when you get to the first like town that isn't reina's hometown you can choose to like it's called like private action mode or whatever yeah you can essentially tell your whole party like hey like go and do your own thing yeah so everyone in your party will just like go and do whatever they want to do so some people will hang out in the inn some people will go to a store and if you seek them out and talk to them you essentially have like little support scenes and this game does like kind of like persona keep track of like your relationship level with everyone in your party and from what i know that's kind of what determines which endings you get yeah how close or not you are with different people yeah um some of them also are like little mini quests in and of themselves so like every once in a while you'll have a situation where you go talk to somebody they'll be like hey i need this thing or i need you to go find this person or whatever whatever so some of them are just straight up dialogue scenes i did one with claude and reina that was a flashback to claude's life on the ship which was very interesting um and i did another one with one of the later characters that involved me like needing to go dungeon crawling essentially for a while to find somebody who was stuck in the dungeon which is very interesting yeah and the combat is really interesting so it's essentially kind of like i think the closest comparison would be ff7 remake where it is like real-time combat but you're kind of building up to using spells or special abilities so you can kind of run around freely and mash attack and at first i will say like it starts off simple enough that it kind of feels like a little bit weightless where it's like do i just like punch as fast as possible like is yeah. that the game because uh, it's worth noting Reyna's fighting style, she's a monk, and she has a lot of healing and buffing spells. Uh, but she has a spell that I love that just drops like a giant rock onto enemies yeah. and breaks their guard. It's amazing. But it's also like her animations while fighting are so fun. Like it feels really good to pull off, but it starts off very simple. And as the difficulty ramps up a bit, like you realize like, oh, timing is key. Because if you just like mash A and you let the enemies swarm you, they're going to wipe you out like instantly. Yeah. So a lot of it is like knowing when and why to do certain abilities and i think it becomes much more gripping and fun when you have more people in the party and they all have their own fighting styles so you can switch between them and then the rest will fight like with an ai but uh i think once you kind of spot opportunities for certain abilities and like or you find openings when you've break in an enemy's guard that's where i think it really like comes into shape yeah i i think at first i thought this game was way too easy because i started playing it on on easy mode and then i was like i am just like annihilating these enemies they don't stand a chance i'm hitting i'm killing them all in one hit or less sometimes like if i'm hitting one guy and i accidentally like tip into the other person with my sword like they're also dying so i'm kind of like going into battle hitting a once or twice and then that's it so i bumped it up to the normal mode and then for the next like hour or two it was still way too easy and it was the first time i had i had three people in my party i was out in the woods doing a side quest and i got uh, attacked by bandits who all knew magic abilities and i waited just like a little bit too long before i went up to go start attacking them and allowed them all to like build up to their casting 
And then they all cast spells at the same time and wiped out the whole party in like a second. <laughs> and that was the moment where I was like, oh, there is more strategy here than just run and press A, which I think yeah. was really helpful for me because that was going to be my biggest complaint about the game. But now that I'm at a point in the game where it's definitely it's definitely ramped up a lot more since then, even it's gotten a lot more interesting. And there are so many different ways you can kind of like micromanage your different characters. So this is this is one of the reasons I wanted to bring up Fantasian also is like Fantasian is definitely a good on ramp. This feels to me like a game for people who have probably played a couple of these kinds of games before. Like this is definitely totally. this is definitely a like not for the faint of heart RPG <laughs> kind yeah. of kind of game. You can level up penmanship yes. in this game. Yeah, that, that's one of the things about it. And and from what I know of the production history of this game, it was it was in the works for a long time, I think, with Enix, and I think eventually got published by Enix. Yeah. But was in development under Enix, and then the the team that made it like br- branched off and made their own thing called Triace because they were getting too much oversight from the Enix team saying that the game was going to be too complicated, and they were like, "That's what we're going for." Like the idea is for this to be really complicated. So every character you can go in and like really micromanage all of the different skills and things. You can also change like the way the AI works for each of the characters when you're not playing as them, kind of like you can in Kingdom Hearts, for example, with donald and goofy in kingdom hearts 2 i guess specifically you can like change the ai for how they work there's also different formations so like how are you starting combat like is everybody starting in a line are people starting in like a kind of arrow shape are people starting like all over the place so there's a lot there's a lot of customization going on there which i think could be seen as daunting probably by most but again if you've played a couple games like this in the past you'll probably pick up on them pretty easily and i think it's honestly exhilarating when you get to a certain point with it when you have all of these options at your disposal and you get to start to realize how almost like in a game like fantasy life where all of the jobs that you can do in fantasy life start to merge into one another and you realize that if i'm a woodcutter eventually in some circuitous way that will help me with my cooking skill similarly in star ocean the second story all of your characters having all these different abilities will eventually in tandem help each other like you can level up fishing with one character that will help cooking with another character and somehow cooking will help you know armor forging or item uh item appraisal and all these different things as you mentioned there's penmanship which allows them to write books and those books if other characters read them that will level up their skills so they can like pass on knowledge from one character to another like literally with items that you can pass around between the party there's so many different wild things things that you can do in this game it's like it's really really stunning and it's amazing that this came out so long ago and just hasn't i think hasn't been replicated to this level ever as far as i can tell yeah yeah it, it feels i mean it's kind of like a on, on one hand you know you can see its influence in games like sea of stars but on the other you know i think we usually get rpgs with this level of like stats you can level up and this level of like hobbies and stuff we see this in like rune factory yeah. you know uh, that's the only one that comes to mind but usually it's like in specifically life sims it's interesting that this game has such a focus on that when it's more of a you know action rpg right yeah, I am. I think I, I, I'm definitely not super far in the game, but I've I've gotten to a point where like things are happening quest wise. I have uh, recruited a couple characters. When you do that, you get to min max all of their stats, however you want. Also, one of the wilder things that I learned uh, after I started playing is that there is a random chance that different characters will have different like innate abilities also. So like one, for example, that stands out is called Nimble Fingers, which if you have that on one of your characters, that will help them increase their odds of being better pickpockets. If you like level up the pickpocket skill, for example, which then allows you to go to literally 
literally any NPC in the game and pickpocket them. And, <laughs> and there is... That's very Octopath, actually. It is very Octopath. Yeah. Um, but there are... You get three chances to pickpocket a person. And what I love about it is like, not only is there this percentage chance of succeeding or failing at doing so, but on top of that, when you are pickpocketing, different characters will feel different ways about pickpocketing. So even if you succeed or fail, if you continue to pickpocket like an old man in the corner of a town, the other people in your party may be like, dude, what the fuck is up with that person? And their relationship meter will change based on that. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So there's also there's also a, like a, a meta friendship meter level to doing these different skills as well. So again, complexities abound. And what I have found is that instead of being daunted by these complexities, I just find them like more endearing and more interesting and allow you to take these characters that are set characters. Like they have names and they are people and they have backstories and families and like all this different stuff. But it allows you to kind of role play them individually if you want to alongside that. So you can change, you know, like, for example, the person who ended up being the pickpocket in my group is Reina, which is the person who is, <laughs> I think, least likely least in likely, terms of her yeah. vibe to become a pickpocket but is very good at it she just happened to be of, of when i just had claude and reina in my party claude didn't have nimble fingers when i started the game and she did and from what i understand you could reset the game if you wanted to and maybe claude will have it or maybe neither of them will have it and that's wild and that just adds again to this like level of replay value for people who are interested in that if you want to play this hundred hour rpg more than once you can and probably have a completely different experience and and really focus on different things which is kind of miraculous have you made it off of the first continent yet no, I'm I'm earlier on than you. I just got my third party member who's like kind of a caster. Yes. Um, okay. And I'm doing a dungeon with her. She's like a treasure hunter as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's like, hey, this is a dungeon that's cleaned out, but I heard there's something in here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's another role play moment where like Claude says like, no, we're kind of busy with the main quest. And then as Raina, I could say yes or no. And she's like, sounds great. Let's do it. Yeah. You know, like, I'm like, I feel like she's so worried about disappointing people. She just agrees to every side quest. What's, you know? what's interesting is... Yeah. In my playthrough with Claude as the protagonist, Reyna is definitely at a bit of a remove from her and like is really, really kind of up in the air about allowing her to join the party, which I think is interesting. interesting. Um, yeah. So my like, for reasons so I don't know, actually, just to be clear, I, th I think this is actually an interesting point to bring up for reasons I am unaware of. They're kind of at odds with one another. There was a moment where I went into a city and there was a private action like the, it told me that there were private actions that I could do in the city. So I went into private action mode. They both left my party. And I wandered around trying to find where they were. And they were both standing in a back alley whispering about something. And I walked up and I asked what they were talking about. And they were both like, oh, nothing. And then they just went their separate ways. And wow. there were other options. Like there were other dialogue options. I like fumbled the dialogue option. So I didn't get to find out what they were talking about. And I just will never know, <laughs> which I think is so interesting. That's incredible. Yeah. So for me, not. I mean, it's a small moment, but basically like, the way that that third character if we're talking about the same one the cast yeah. is introduced she's like in an argument with a guy in the city uh and he's like hey you stole something from me and yes. then reyna reyna popped in and is like why are you like treating a lady like this like stop yelling at her like, what are you doing yeah and then kind of just like humiliates him enough so he leaves and then like so it's interesting that for me like there wasn't any tension between the two characters because she like stuck up for her basically yeah I, was that claude for you because you were playing as him uh yeah claude yeah claude essentially like gives the guy dressing down a little bit and then um her name is celine just to be clear yeah so so it's celine and she's arguing with this guy in the town square claude is like why are you yelling at her this doesn't make any sense and celine is like i don't need your help and then just like lights the guy on fire <laughs> and he runs off that that she casted a spell on him too for me but yeah that's 
that's so cool that we could have a moment like that from a different perspective in that way. I, I think like this, truly yeah. didn't know that it was going to be that different. I I really thought that it was like once you get past the opening, it's mostly the same. I didn't realize that it was going to be as different as it is. I'm only learning this now talking to you about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think like I feel like this. it's such a hard thing to do because you essentially have to make like two different games, you know, it feels that like way. For, yeah. The dual, like I, we played Scarlet Nexus a while ago, which had the dual protagonist as well. And like that game is a lot of fun. And I think there is value in the different paths, but it feels like a lot of it was almost kind of written backwards where they, they really wanted to like justify them being two protagonists. And then really at the end, they kind of just ask you to play the other story anyway. Yeah, it just it kind of it didn't fully work. And Three Houses, our, our beloved game, um, I would argue pulls it off. Yeah. But I do know that some people feel frustrated by having to play it three times to know the full scope. Mm. I think if you're comfortable with like, I mean, I did no problems. I liked playing the game, so I played it more than three times. I had no problem because you could just play as a golden deer and then you know everything. <laughs> That's true. But uh, yeah, I I think this game does pull off that very well because they're also both in your party. So you're not like losing the other main character. You're just getting it from their point of view. Yeah. And also, to be clear, you can switch characters whenever you want if you want to like you can i think i think so if you were to change hypothetically the leader in the menu like you can go into the menu and change the party order and you can say who is the leader and who's not so you like switch it to be like i could switch it to be reina hypothetically and run around the city as reina but i i wonder if i'm doing that if i enter a cutscene, is it from reina it would, it would probably revert yeah i think because you have to choose that in the beginning yeah. i'm pretty sure it stays to that the whole time yeah. but i think like i don't have to have claude in my party like my party could be reina and three other people yeah i think you also hypothetically get rid of reyna i think she would still probably show up for cutscenes and stuff sure but i think you could just play as a bunch of the randos that you pick up over time many of which are great i will say that much i love i love some of the characters i picked up and i think i can't wait too. to meet more of them yeah I'm, I'm i'm assuming the guy with three eyes who ran past this is probably one of them did you pick up on who he is have you figured that out no i haven't yet but i just i, I don't know why that really made me laugh there's a really interesting like literally environmental storytelling moment that tells you who he is and where he comes from which uh i think you might be past already if i'm being honest i, th oh, I think you might have already seen it uh, i just feel like i'm so happy because i feel like this is like really upper alley like it feels yeah. like this is one that you and i are going to really love and it's nice to find you know i think this genre is so inherently retro it's really special to find like a new favorite like this yeah you know? i i don't want to be too hyperbolic about it but i feel very similarly when i'm running around the world and talking to characters and like min maxing all this stuff i feel really similar to the way i felt when i played dragon quest 11 for the first time like especially having it on the switch also it runs so well on the switch i've been playing it in handheld mode mostly like just while watching tv and stuff just like running around and grinding or just like staring at the excel spreadsheet of things that i can level up it feels really like cozy in that way i think yeah but the story is also getting really interesting and knowing that there is this looming like hypothetical space threat to it which i don't just to be clear i don't know anything about that but i just feel like you introduce this character in space in a Star Trek-esque uh, world, bring them to like a Dragon Quest high fantasy medieval world. I assume that the two are going to collide in some way, but right now it just feels like I am going and fighting like a big bad of some sort. You know, there's like, there, there's uh, what do they call it? The Sorcerer's Sphere or something like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which sounds to me, so the Sorcerer's Sphere like collided with the planet and has been like upending the planet and it seems like there are fragments of it that are like mind controlling people making them do bad things like there's a, yeah. there's a lot of weird stuff going 
going on with it. And it sounds to me like a weird cosmic entity has like crash landed on a comet into this planet. And because their only perception of the world is through this like high fantasy medieval lens, they're kind of warping their reality around the idea that, of course, it's like, you know, a dark lord or something, when in fact, it may be something maybe even more benign that we don't even know about. Because I, yeah. don't, I it just feels like there's going to be that Star Trek TNG influence eventually where you find out like or even actually Star Trek, the, the motion picture, the first movie that they made, where it's like this big evil cosmic being is actually just like totally benevolent and doesn't even realize it's being a, a, a maleficent force or something, you know? Yeah. Irony too is that like you know I'm sure that Claude is gonna prove his like true heroism in some way even yeah. though he's like no I'm just I really like I like how he's like please don't worship me as a hero like don't like yes. that's not gonna help anybody I'm really just like a guy he really bends over backwards to prove to people that he's not the hero of legend I think yeah yeah but but also is like you know does a lot of good things like immediately so everyone likes him yeah uh, right. But the irony is that I just feel like Reyna is probably going to actually be the chosen one, mm. you know, because I think she has this mysterious origin and it can heal. And that's like a rare thing. But she's like kind of hoping that someone else can be that role. I'm just guessing, but I'm wondering if that will like flip at some point. You know, I would love that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But I think it's I, I, I you know, you have the them representing the fantasy and sci fi of it. But I also like how Claude is very pragmatic and like you know i guess a little bit more like he's not trying to like ruin the literal fantasy of like reina's worldview but i think he's like the realist yeah he, yeah he's not like walking around being like i'm from space this is my phaser gun etc et yeah cetera, you know let me let me fuck you up by showing you the iphone as you were saying earlier i think reina really wants to believe that like there's a reason for things happening and like that there's like destiny and heroes and like yeah that things aren't it's kind of heartbreaking like there's this like dinner table where like the mayor and reina's mom and reina are all like telling claude the legend of the hero and that how he like matches it and him being like i'm sorry i'm not that for you but like you need to know that that's like not what's happening here yeah and reina just like runs out and like needs a moment by herself what does she do in that moment because you played as her. What, where does she go? She runs out into the woods to like collect her thoughts. It seems like a place where she like goes to like be alone. Yeah. And that's when you get a flashback of her in her room. She overhears an argument between the mayor and her mother right after her dad died. Yes. Okay. And it's it's revealed that she was adopted mm -hmm. um, and that her pendant is at the only link. She she tells Claude that like on the bridge. Also, he is like on a walkie talkie. I'm like, I know that that's probably a scene I'm not getting. Yeah, that's actually just him trying to reach out into space and seeing if anybody will respond to him. Oh, got it. But yeah, she she just sort of recalls a memory and then like comes back and is like, hey, sorry, I ran off. Yeah. But it's simple stuff. And like the, the writing can be a little repetitive, but like I find it to be really effective and charming. Like I really like these two characters. And I think I, I'm a sucker for like, you know, it's the classic refusal of the call, but I like how kind of humble they both are. Yeah. You know, I think it's like, I, I think the, you know, the game, if you leave the menu on for too long, there's like a high energy anime cutscene of them, like doing the usual RPG stuff. And I'm like, I feel like when we actually get to that point, it's going to feel really earned because like we we've seen them through it all. You know? Yeah, it, re it reminds me uh, a lot of of Trails, right? Remind, yeah. Which is a, a franchise very similar to Star Ocean that we keep bringing up. But like that, that whole first game is just set up for, you know, the big, exciting event that's eventually going to happen. And uh, that feels like that's what's happening with Star Ocean, where like even where I'm at right now, I think I'm like six or seven hours into the game at this point. Yeah. Like really the only thing that has happened in terms of like the quest 
to investigate what's wrong with with the planet is like there was a big earthquake at one point. I don't want to say much more than that, but there was just a big earthquake and everyone was shocked by it. And like there's really not even the implication like nobody even really talks about the fact that like maybe maybe the big uh, sorcerer's sphere caused that or something. It's just kind of a natural disaster that happened at one point. But that was like the big plot event that happened. So they're really taking their time with it story wise. And I, I really appreciate that. And I, I am excited to see where it goes. And I think this is a game I'm going to play a shitload of. <laughs> yeah. This is like, ah, uh, yes, yeah, seasonal depression. This will this will cure it. Like you for know? real. Yeah. Yeah, in exactly the same way Dragon Quest Eleven was at yeah, this time yeah. of year a couple of years ago. This this really couldn't have come out at a better time. I also think it's just a good game to have on in the background while you're watching TV. Yeah, it's it's like often low stakes enough. You can kind of play doing other things. But yeah, because I mean, I, I have found that so much of my time, just similar to how I play all of these kinds of games, but a lot of my time has been spent not doing the main quest. Um, but instead like fishing or cooking or crafting or doing all these other side things that you can do. It's really easy to just dump a lot of time into all this other stuff. And as soon as I started fishing, because I got a quest from the guild that was like, go catch one fish. And I realized I was there for like 25 minutes, even though I had <laughs> caught the fish like immediately. I was like, oh, I get why people say this game could be endless if you wanted it to be. Yeah, that's amazing. I also just picked up fishing in FF14. So I think I'm fucked. I'm just going to like, that's it. I have, I have various fishing sims. Game of the uh, year. Yeah. <laughs> fishing. Fishing. Just fishing. Yeah, it's I think we'll probably bring this up again if I had to guess. I, I would love to talk about like where the story ends up going once we get further in. Yeah, me too. I'm also just like dreading what inevitably will be decisions between who to recruit. I think that's mm. the thing that I'm like really scared of. In addition to uh there being some unique characters for which lead you choose, you can only recruit eight, right? And there are 12 characters overall. I think so. And recruiting some mean that you can't recruit others. Um oh, man. like yeah. the, there are there are decisions to be made there. I um, love that though. I think yeah. that's awesome. Um yeah. That's actually very, uh, very Chrono Cross where there are like, it is, yeah. there are many decisions in that game that will like lock you out of some characters. Yeah. But if you do new game plus, you can get everybody. Also, you don't have to have surge in your party if you don't want to. If you want to have the alien, the baby dragon and the radish guy, you can. Okay. The skeleton. And yeah, the skelly, the clown skeleton. Skelly, the clown. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, now that skelly has gotten his big chance, do you want to end the episode? Yeah, that's Star Ocean. The second story R. We're both playing it on Switch. It's, it's really great. good. It's wonderful. Uh, you can play it on all of your platforms, but uh, boy, playing it in bed is is uh, is is a dream. Space. Space. The realm reborn. The realm of infinite possibility. <laughs> oh, it is the realm. That's amazing. Yeah, they're like, how do we say the final frontier and not say that? Basically. Yeah. Cool. Well, hey, thank you so much for listening. You know the drill uh, into the cast that online is where to go. I think we're going to keep this wrap up short because we've been recording for... Oh my God, it's three? <laughs> we've, been we've been sitting here for seven hours? What? Yeah, it's 4 p.m. for me. Yeah. Oh my God. All right. Uh, we gotta go. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> Into the cast at online. We did a lot of announcements uh, earlier this episode. But yeah. for real, thank you so much for listening. I, I'm I I am so excited for for game of the year and just like being together again. And and just thank you all for joining us with this show. It's been such a joy to make. I mean, we're not we're not ending the show, but I just want to you know <laughs> just being grateful for the last five years. Yeah, this is the last tired. one. Also, we forgot to mention. Bye that. bye. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about Star Ocean again. Anyway, this is the last episode. <laughs> This episode, The Realm of Infinite Possibilities. Thank you. Good night. Have a good one. Goodbye, everybody.
PWG, the worst garbage.